My name is Will Spencer, and you're listening to the Renaissance of Men podcast, a place for extended, in-depth discussions about the rebirth of virtuous masculinity happening around the world today. My guest this week is a writer and a fighter, a leader and a counselor, God willing, soon to be a husband and a father, plus a brother in Christ, an inspiration, and a friend. From Blood and Rain, please welcome back Arthur Dane. This is a time of transformation. As old ways fall, men are called to rise, to heal our lives, grow strong, and transcend our limitations. In tribes around the world, drawing on the best of masculinity from all of time, a new day is beginning. This is the Renaissance of Men. You are the Renaissance. Before I begin this week's episode, I'd like to say a word of thanks. This past weekend, I had the chance to sit down to lunch with a lovely lady who is also a fan of the podcast. She had some things to say about the show reflecting her opinions and presumably some of yours, that truly touched my heart. We live in an age of father hunger. Men and women, husbands and wives, boys and girls, long for a connection with the father they never had or got too little of. That longing has left a vacuum filled in different ways by different men. When I started the Renaissance of Men podcast, my intention was not to become one of those men but to showcase the ones who had. Through their work, I had been transformed, learning things that weren't passed down through my family, growing in the ways I needed, shaping myself and being shaped into the man I wanted to be, the man I believed and still believe God made me to be. I wanted to honor those men and some women who contributed to that process. I didn't think I'd have much to contribute to it, as everything had already advanced so far, or at least I thought. The impact was about to happen. The fireworks show was about to begin. Men were heading into the playoffs, and I just happened to show up with a microphone and some audio production knowledge. But this lovely young lady, we'll call her Kay, said that what I've created is more than that, at least to her and the people she knows who also listen and who she shared the podcast with, sometimes at personal cost. She said, and I quote, Speaking on behalf of all young people, we need your content because, as God blesses your work, you are the reason we can have hope that we can work to build a better future for ourselves and our posterity as you guide us in how to live and help us heal from our hurts and teach us truths forgotten. She said I helped show her how to be a person, and when I lamented that there are those who criticize me, often viciously, for speaking about fatherhood while myself not being a father, she said, I wonder if those who give you grief for not being a father even know what truly being a father to someone means. Often I've tried to imagine the scenarios you listen to this podcast in. Cars, homes, bedrooms, offices, clubhouses, airplanes, morning and evening commutes with relatives, friends, and family. I'm not the sort to imagine the impact that I have. It wouldn't be like me to say, I bet people are crying to this one although at least with some recent episodes, I hope I've made you laugh. But what I hadn't imagined and could never imagine 
was that on the other side of this microphone, I am moving you as I also have been moved, teaching as I have been taught, giving as I have been given, fathering as I have been fathered. I see this as an awesome responsibility. I take it seriously. And in line waiting for communion at church on Sunday, I was reflecting on what a gift of trust it is from you. I aim to honor it by speaking the truth as best I know and can articulate, by paying attention to the details because they matter, by caring about my guests, your interests and views as an audience, and what you've come to expect of me and I of myself in the virtues I espouse. And of course, I honor it by reflecting as well as any saved but still sinful man can with the best wisdom and compassion of my Christian faith. This is, I believe, what it means to lead anything, a home, a business, men, a movement, that we must be the men and women we hope to see. We cannot bring the fathers back we needed, but we can become the ones that others will need, because three years on, the impact hasn't happened yet. The fireworks show has not yet begun. And while it isn't the playoffs after all, many men I know and admire have lost, some by their own hand, and one man has already won eternally. Thank you, Kay, for sharing with me things I couldn't know, for speaking words to help me see the ways that you felt blessed, and thereby blessing me and many others in return. I think all these words will apply just as much to this week's guest and to his circle as they do to me perhaps even more so, because something happened in 2020, and it wasn't just a pandemic which, by now, I hope everyone sees through. Those events were just the surface manifestations of something deeper, some fundamental cosmic shift that caught us all in its wake. We're more animals than we realize, blessed with intuitions beyond our understanding, and for some reason in 2020, a bunch of men started saying, I need to start a podcast and start writing about masculinity. No, I don't think it was due to lockdowns and having nothing better to do, though in some cases, that's probably true. I think instead it was a response to societal conditions, where some dormant part of us said, I've got something to say about this. And then they did. The term unlikely heroes comes to mind. I certainly never thought I'd start a podcast. I couldn't stand the sound of my voice. And I'm sure for many men, the thought of being a public figure seems strange, intimidating, distracting but undeniably necessary. Which brings me to my guest this week. His name is Lord Arthur Dane, and you probably know him from the podcast and Instagram page, Blood and Rain. He's a stage-trained actor, a brooding and thoughtful writer, and an aspiring pro fighter whose physique looks a bit like a dump truck with fists. And in 2020, just like me, he felt the call to speak up on matters related to masculinity, fitness, philosophy, geopolitics, art, culture, literature, the SF Oakland Bay Area, which he once called home, and of course, fighting. He's since become a mentor and role model in his own right, leading the men and women of anti-fragile fitness, which I call AFFGanistan, forward into war. Cultural war, political war, religious war, a war on weakness, gravity, and the other man in the ring. It's been inspiring to watch a fellow man in the arena step forward into the role for men who need him and grow to become his own warrior in body, mind, and spirit, all of which you'll hear in our conversation. In that conversation, Arthur and I discussed the history of American leadership prior to World War I, 
Arthur's personal vision of leadership, the origins of anti-fragile fitness, F. Scott Fitzgerald and the American downfall, and finally, war. If you enjoy the Renaissance of Men podcast, thank you. Please leave a five-star rating on Spotify and a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Plus, share this episode with a friend so the Renaissance of Men can reach more people. The Renaissance of Men podcast is sponsored by Reformation Coffee, purveyors of fine hand-roasted beans by a pastor in Springfield, Missouri, creating godly prosperity for his household, community, and the kingdom. Visit their website, reformationcoffee.com, and use the code SUBFREE to get one free bag of coffee with your monthly subscription. Keep listening to find out more about my mini-series, Will Reforms His Coffee, which will be playing exclusively in the mid-roll of this podcast as I learn to be a bit less of a coffee heathen. Also, I have exciting news. The next edition of the Renaissance of Men digital conference series has been announced, with a lineup of all-female speakers, including Annalise from Feminine Not Feminist, Christiana from Dear Sister, Soli Oli, Bernadine Bluntly, Issa Ryan, Martine DeLuna, and special guest, the one and only Alison Armstrong. In this all-day online event, we'll be discussing the virtues of the Proverbs 31 woman. Get your tickets now at renofmen.com conference. And please welcome this week's guest on the Renaissance of Men podcast, from anti-fragile fitness and blood and rain, a brother and friend for all seasons, Arthur Dane. Arthur, welcome back to the podcast. My pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. It's been a couple of years, I think. When was the last time you were on? Was it, it was like late 2020, early 2021, right? Something like that? February 21. So a little over two years. A little over two years. A lot's, a lot's changed in that time. Yeah, it feels like it was like two weeks ago and also five years ago. So. Right? <laughs> that's, that, that's kind of how I feel. Like it was like, it couldn't have been two years ago. But then when I really think about it, it actually does feel like two years ago. Everything, I think the world... And we both were pretty different at the time, actually. And like, yeah, and in good ways and bad will in bad ways. I don't know how to phrase that, but I think you know what I mean. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, I was still knee deep in my overnight security COVID crucible when I last recorded. That's right. I'm like <laughs> so far gone from that. It really does feel like much longer ago. But since I was so sleep deprived, everything sort of blended into one week of group chats and postings. And I was like, hey, this person got sucked. Like now we're what? Okay, so um, <laughs> you're still sleep deprived though. Some things never change. Yeah, yeah always sleepless in some capacity. Exactly. Well, you're all that time brooding. Yeah, I don't think that'll ever stop. I mean, sometimes my lady <laughs> will ask me what I'm thinking. I'm like, you really want to know? She's like, yeah. I'm like, well, there's certain metaphysical truths that I've noticed in certain given circumstances, and I have to wonder whether or not those are from God. Uh, <laughs> and. You know, this is, she's like, that's what you're thinking about on a Sunday when you and I are at a museum with my 10 year old sister. I'm like, yeah, (laughs) (laughs) you know what you get into before all this. Come on. Um, so it's, it's literally that meme where she's, where the the couple's in bed and she's like, I wonder if he's thinking about me and he's thinking, and he's, (laughs) that's that's literally you. Yeah. No, I, I couldn't couldn't agree more, honestly. (laughs) Okay. This is this is why women shouldn't ask men like, "What are you thinking about?" It's like, "What well, do you do? You really want to know?" Yeah, how much time? Do you have? Like, <laughs> <How> much time? <laughs> I thought it was. I thought it was me. No, no. I think this is like if if you're if you're a, of a certain level of intellectual capacity as a male, like you're gonna have like these multiple tabs of lines of thinking 
and, and they may or may not be visually stunning or fantastical. I mean, sometimes I kind of see just in footwork and Muay Thai, like almost metaphysical truths. And yeah. recently coaching, you know, a mutual friend of ours, John Hauger, he asked me, um, he's like, your head moves in a very bizarre way when you, when you train. Can you explain? I was like, oh gosh, okay. Um, right. So you know the Fibonacci spiral? And he's like, what? Yep. <laughs> um, <laughs> what? And he's like, I was like, yeah, I actually kind of visualized the ring as four Fibonacci spirals converging at one point interesting like yeah so Mm. um that's that's kind of the the affliction of the male psyche uh, before you know in in this fallen world i think you're i think you're probably right about that actually because there's that other meme what is it it's the um it's the two it's the caveman and the cavewoman showering in the waterfall and it shows (laughs) like the thought bubble you know where it's like the woman the cavewoman is like a baby and a butterfly and then the caveman, and then the caveman is thinking about the wheel and the club and his enemy. You know, <laughs> yeah. why is it <laughs> memes tell more truth than I think than, than I think we realize? It's a new window of communication that I think mm-hmm. we've been looking for for a long time. Um, may, maybe in the past, like we had something else, and that kind of goes under our noses. I was listening to a, um, a really great stream about postmodernism recently. Um, and it's talking as you about, do, as you do. Yeah, of course. Uh, <laughs> talking about Derrida and company and Foucault, and you know, kind of he's he's a Gen Xer, this guy or Zenial or what you know, a tweener generation between uh, Gen X and Millennial. Um, he says, "I like we're living in a winter. We're the children of the winter, and I like Seinfeld. I like all this art that I think is trash." And he's like, "This is art made for me." Because I'm a child of the winter, and we'll never, and most people will never understand the references. And if you go back and look at Shakespeare, and you hmm. look at it humbly, we can understand the transcendent parts of Shakespeare. But there are probably so many small things that we are never going to understand in our age because it related to the time. Um, mm-hmm. And there was probably something more transcendent. I mean, you know, in the Victorian era, the way people spoke with each other was so subtle um, because after Victoria lost yeah. Albert, she just clamped down on everything. Um, and so there was different ways of communicating that went beyond and had something more or something different than the dynamics we have of just regular speech. I mean, some people could draw a comparison to emojis. Um, I wouldn't. Mm. But um, I think I think memes are just they break through any kind of barriers because you can't argue with them because it's a stupid picture of a penguin fighting SpongeBob or something. Yeah. No, I think there's a lot of different directions that I I want to go with that, that you just said very quickly. Um, I think the most, I I, I want to pull on the thread about communication being very subtle because this is something that I've thought about, you know, trying to understand the appeal of these uh, British kind of period dramas Mm-hmm. Right, that take place in the Victorian era. Like women, re- women really love those mm-hmm. those movies, right? And 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 there are some there are some good ones that I think men enjoy as well, like Pride and Prejudice, for example. Like some of the adaptations, some of the older adaptations of that. And I was trying to figure out what is the appeal of these very oh, um, Downton Abbey is another one. Mm, no, I never I never watched Downton Abbey, but I did go see the movie. Um, with my dad and his fiance, and I actually found that I really I enjoyed the movie quite a bit, and it was completely appropriate even for people who had never watched the series. And I was trying to figure out what is the appeal of this, I guess you'd say, British style of film. 
And I realized that a lot of it comes down to the subtlety, the idea that people are communicating with very subtle facial expressions, you know, timing of the delivery of words, the choice of language, that there's a lot that's kind of baked in to that. And that's the appeal is, is that just the slightest look across a, across a ballroom you know, is the whole, the whole movie pivots on, a, on, a, on an eye contact, right? Yeah. And then you compare that with the American style of movie, which is like explosions, <laughs> guns, and yelling, and they have to say it over and over and over again in all these different ways. And that was, a real, that was a real window for me into like, okay, I guess I can understand why people really do like these movies because it's a completely, it's a completely different way of being that we're not used to, at least being Americans, maybe Maybe Brits, but I'm, I'm not British right now, so I can't say. <laughs> not right now. Not right now. I'll, I'll work on that. <laughs> um, I mean, you know, I can speak a fair bit on this um, because... Ah, oh, yes, you can. Yeah. I, I went to drama school at just recently, having been 19 at the time. Um, so in a lot of ways, and I tell this a lot of people, I, can't, I can never claim to be Anglo because I most certainly am not. But I heard your Basque. Once or twice, yeah. <laughs> um, but, you know, I kind of, I finished growing up in England. I, I was still young. I was still in my formative years. I didn't finish growing up in the Bay Area. I finished in England. And that gave me something very different uh, in my being. When I came home to the Bay Area, like everyone knew, like my parents just looked at me in a much different way. My best friend had to get used to it. He's like, he's being weird. Um, <laughs> how can you, it's Arthur. How can you tell? <laughs> um, I mean, there's, there's a difference and they teach you this in drama school, like within the first few months that there's a difference in the American and, and British stage tradition, at least, you know, post 1950, maybe, you know, post 1900 of American realism analyzes all the flaws, right? You, you need to see the flaws of humanity in every single sentence, right? That's considered realistic. If you try doing having that standard of realism in the British stage, they'd be like, well, "What are you doing? This is just maniacal. This is mm. This is outlandish. This is insane, right? These are the kinds of thoughts that most British people would just ignore. They would quote unquote keep calm and carry on. So British realism doesn't have these flaws, and British realism." Um, I don't necessarily think this is an all-time British thing, but at least since the Victorian era, so much is spoken through subtext. Yep. Like it is between the lines that really matters in communication, um, not only in media and stage, um, but in, you know, with, with people. I mean, they're often mistaken as being quite cold. And in the very beginning, I didn't really have many friends because it takes a while to make friends in England. But when your friends be the type of thing where if your mother dies, you know, your your friend from England is there the very next day, there to help. And they're going to say something cheeky that you didn't think is really rude. Like, oh, she was tired of hanging around now, was she? <laughs> but she heard just dying. Um, but they're actually there. They're a friend. They're a friend. So it's a completely different um, set of, of default settings, basically. Um, mm-hmm. Which I really grew to appreciate towards the end of my time there. At first, I was a bit bitter because I just didn't know which way was up. I was communicating like an American, a very young American from California of all places. Um, and I had, to, I had to learn really, really, uh, really quickly to adjust accordingly. But I got a lot more out of life after I did it. After you had adjusted to the way that people communicate in England. Absolutely. And, and to this day, like coming home, um, 
you know, Haley Atwell, of all people, was talking about, because I think she has ties to Kansas City. She said, I find myself too outspoken for the United Kingdom and too reserved for the United States. And I think that's a, like a really horrible balance that I've had to endure since then. Hmm. Haley Atwell, why does that name sound familiar? Uh, Peggy Carter, Captain America. Oh, <laughs> okay. Yeah, yeah. Okay, a couple, three, la- three layers of reference deep. Um, you know, I, I think what we understand as American, I, I hear that. And I think what we understand as American right now, or as American style of communication, isn't actually American. Like from my time overseas and in, the, and in England and in Europe, I kind of see that this great beast has started devouring the world, but it ate America first. And so we don't really know what America is. We're looking at, we're looking at the digested, hollowed out you know, husk of what the United States once stood for in its prime and in its vitality. And though we still have a lot of um, economic vitality, socially, morally, culturally, spiritually, the country is very dead. And most people in most people's lifetimes, that's the only America they've ever known. Maybe that America died. Maybe the, the spiritually vibrant America died sometime in the late 70s, its final breath before the consumerist 80s. But you know, to say too reserved for Americans, I think America and Americans used to have a quiet dignity and reserve very different from England, but we've certainly lost that. Like I saw a video on, uh, I think it was on Instagram today of uh, girls twerking on top of a car driving around uh, downtown Minneapolis. And that's like, oh, this is, this is, this is fine. <laughs> so I, I, whatever we used to be, I think it's gone. What's that? Flames everywhere. Yeah, this is fine. Yeah. This is fine. This is this is fine. So I don't know. I, I hear that, and I guess I guess when I when I I have this idea in my mind of what America once was and is capable of being again, mm. and I and and when I hear something like that, like too too expressive for England, I don't know what the word you use, but too reserved for America is like, well, the the implication of that would be to say that Americans are not reserved, um, and in a way that we're in a way we're not. But I think. I would like to see us get to a place where we have that quiet dignity and resolve again. I mean, there's, there's a lot of, a lot of factors that go into it. I think, I think a lot of people still forget that we were birthed out of England. Like we are an Anglo country in origin. We inherited Anglo law and made it into something more right. American law, but it came from, from that tradition. Congress comes from the parliamentary system. Um, so that that kind of reserved nature was there, like biologically, um, but that's not the only factor that goes into it. Um, to your point, we we had a culture, and in a lot of ways, we still have it. We, you know, the foundations are still there. Um, I get particularly choked up when I see anything from America, like the Gilded Age, up until World War One, so like the aughts, um, mm-hmm. and you know, pre-1913. And then actually, if you see videos of the Americans getting ready to go overseas, World War One, you know, they're throwing hand grenades like they're baseballs, right? There's a, mm. there's a rugged spirit, but still a quiet reverence to them as a counterbalance. And, you know, they're singing these songs over there, over there, say a prayer, say a prayer over there for the Yanks are coming. Like there's a, there's a fighting spirit to it, but there's a reverent one that goes with it. And that's, that in itself could be America. And that in itself was America. Um, and I think 
when we were left to our own devices in the Monroe Doctrine era up until World War I, um, we were a very healthy nation. We, had, we were a nation that had progressions that were steady and they were true to the point where the Japanese learned them for us and they later called it Kaizen. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, when we, th- th- this nation's last hurrah uh, was under Coolidge. Um, it was, I mean, not, not to get into some of the, the deeper <laughs> topics about this, but 1913 was a particular affliction for the United States. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Warren G. Harding uh, and Calvin Coolidge were very much return, the return to status quo presidents. Uh, for those who aren't familiar, Harding was president from 1921 until 23, and then when he died, uh, Coolidge was his vice president who took over and uh, ran for another term, so about six years. Um, those eight years were the return to the pre-Wilson international era. Um, Coolidge mysteriously decided not to run again. Many people didn't know why. There are a lot of reasons that it were put out there. Um, Herbert Hoover took over, and he kind of played the sort of kayfabe um, George Herbert Walker Bush to Bill Clinton, but with FDR. And FDR onward, um, that just transformed the nation from a nation that had an accountable leadership structure to one that had this nebulous managerialism that no one really knew mm. things going downhill. So really the last hurrah was that era until 1933 when FDR took, uh, took office. 45, we're looking like we're sitting pretty, you know, victorious largest military ever assembled um greatest manufacturing force ever um asia our competitors in asia and europe they were you know decimated right but um but then we started you know being the that america stopped acting in the interests of americans and started acting in the interests of a, of a global standing mm-hmm. and the primary mover of that, aside from the military, is, is economics, is, is the growing business culture in the United States. And the silent generation gave way to the, you know, the suburban America where everyone owns a car and no one really lives in a neighborhood. No one really lives in a community. It's just a bunch of houses and a bunch of roads. So no one's really communicating. No one's building actual communities. Um, the ideal is the American dream revamped from the 1920s. Of you know owning a washer dryer, owning all these things—that's what it means to be American. So consumerism became synonymous with American culture, and it was such a wild source of profit for the ad men, uh, and it really caught mm. fire in the '60s. So over time, things that were seen as reverence were seen as inefficient because they weren't fast enough. You know, a Monet mm. too long to look at. You need to look at pop art. Uh, I can't write a long letter to you in poetry. We don't have time. So just say what you need to say and let's keep moving. And over time, look at the way we speak. Now it's, you know, I'll see you tomorrow. I'm very much looking forward to it. See you tomorrow. See you later. See you later. Late. Yeah. Like it's, we're not, we're losing our capability. Nod. nod. Oh yeah. Nod, you know, bro nod in the gym. Right. So like this, we, we mistaken efficiency. We've, mis- we've mistaken efficiency uh, or something that erodes our culture for American efficiency, and it's killing us. We don't really know what to do about it. It's very interesting because I would have I, I, I agree I agree with that. So that's a brilliant spotting of a trend, and I would say that there's also probably something associated with that with like masculinity, 
mm-hmm. and, and not, in, not in a positive way yeah. where it's like, bro, like men don't use a lot of words. Like you should <laughs> say less. Ernest Hemingway said five word sentences. Yeah. That's what it means to be a man. Instead of, instead of erudite, clear speech, you know how you can tell if you're listening to something, all things being equal, that if you're listening to something prior to 1960 or 1950, is you can hear in TV shows and talk shows and radio programs, you can hear their diction. You can hear the way they pronounce words and the way even on television, like I've been watching like some stuff with like Billy Graham on YouTube. And you can listen to him talk and you can hear instantly, oh, this is mid-century because of the way that he was talking or listen to Fulton Sheen, right? Mm -hmm. And somehow we've lost the sense that it's okay to be a man and communicate. So that's why we like, but it's like, it's too much to say, hey, have a good day. Like you can't say that. You have to be cool, which means you don't say very much, (laughs) right? And so we we lose a lot of that, right? We lose a lot of that you know, it's okay to communicate your, your, to have an inner reality that you express verbally. Instead, you just, you can't have an inner reality, man. I'm this, I'm this, I'm the Sigma male. <laughs> we could, we could, we could run down that. But, you know, I think, I, but I think, I wonder if these things are related somehow because it's, it's turned us into caricatures uh, of what men used to be because you can listen to dignified men, you know, give quite long speeches and no one ever questioned their manliness because they used words, right? And may, maybe we're trapped a little bit in that cycle right now. I would agree. I think that's undeniable. I think the, the question then is, is the lack of communication come from the lack of masculinity? Does the lack of uh, masculinity come from the lack of communication? Maybe they're more bidirectional, paradoxical. We don't know, but it's clear that's the case. Um, and back, back then too, I mean, speech was, um, you know, that, that, that old accent of like, whatever it is, it sounds awful. And today I went over to Macy's and I found that they had a wonderful sale and I got something for my wife and I'm sure she'll be very happy. Like that, that accent was, was manufactured much like the RP accent was at BBC in the thirties. Um, mm. But at least it's like something, yeah, you may have quote unquote crafted it out of thin air, but it was elegant. It was refined. Um, you didn't, you know, these are people like Cary Grant and all these old school actors, you know, Jimmy Stewart had a very particular, uh, very mm-hmm. particular voice, you know, with Harvey and it's a wonderful life. Um, but these were strong men. And a lot of those I mean Jimmy Stewart was a brigadier general in the U S army air Corps. Right. So I don't think anyone's doubting his masculinity and his rhetoric. It's fantastic. And I was on a, I was on a Twitter space with the mega Verma like a year ago. We we're talking about the importance of rhetoric. And if you want to be a man who defends you know, what he cares about, right? You're not, a lot of guys say, yes. like, I don't want all this talk. Like when it comes down to it, I got my, my land in the Pacific Northwest and I'm ready to defend it. Or, you know, some, I got 10,000 rands of ammo. Yeah. I'm ready to throw down when it's time. Like, yeah, okay. I speak yeah. with my fists. Yeah. Well, I guess what? I speak with my fists and my words. Exactly. Um, you know, you need, if you're going to defend what it is that you love, you don't want it to get to that point. So you need to develop a certain combat prowess in terms of rhetoric. And that doesn't mean, you know, that doesn't mean spending 16 hours on, on, on the internet you know, debating <laughs> with people who are never going to agree with you. Maybe you should go outside and touch grass. But um, it, is, it is an important skill to have, and it's a skill that's lost. Um, and if you go into high school now, 
speech and debate is seen as like the nerd sport. When Always it's, has been. Yeah, it, it used to be, these used to be vital skills of... Oh, yeah, you know, Model like, UN. Yeah, there it is. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, did I, did I just touch on a sore spot? I mean, you say the letters U and N, it's just, you know. Oh, no, the, 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 don't, don't go off. We're, we were onto something important. So. Yeah. <laughs> no, that, that's, not, that's not a rabbit hole I'm ever going to go down. I'm no, no, no. Um, but that's, <laughs> <laughs> um, that's uh, basically, this is, it's, it's an important aspect of existence. In a, and it's, it's part of also a ritual. And ritual doesn't always have to be a religious thing. Obviously, I come from a strain of Christianity that's, you know, is original in nature and is very ritualistic. But I agree with the second part. Yeah, I, 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 I don't agree <laughs> with the second part. Um, but in terms of um, in, in terms of uh, in terms of ritual, the only it wasn't just religious. Like there were rituals of you know, rites of passage. We've talked about initiation a lot in the past two mm-hmm. years in the masculine space and, and adjacent spheres to that. Um, there's also ritual of the way you started the day. Things were a bit slower, so it had more time, but these rituals were what gave life meaning. And we've thrown them out in the name of better efficiency, but we don't know what the efficiency yes. is for anymore. So it's 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 sad and, and you know i was watching two years ago i was watching the el cid series with my dad you know he's full-blooded canarian you know while that's a different ethnic group entirely from the spanish you know we've been under spanish rule since the 1400s so him and i are watching this like high thumos like highly expressive like just brotherhood like head to head you know in in adoration for your brothers in arms they're praying together um after swinging swords and I said, like, this lack of vitality and this lack of poetry is what's mm. making life feeling like this absolute husk of living that we're in now, which is why I appreciate you doing poetry for men. I think it's, uh, mm. I think, I wish there was more visibility on that, to be honest. Thank you. Yeah, I'm way behind on that series. I, I actually, when I started the podcast, I intended to do, was it two episodes per week, one interview and one poetry episode per week. But once I discovered how much effort goes into doing a poetry episode it's something that i've got to spend weeks on for like 20 minutes you know just to have the time and focus to research and pull the information together but i i think you said a bunch of really really important things um in there about that that what i take away from it is there's a notion of what i might call like spiritual warfare um but the warfare isn't it's not necessarily theological, though it is also that. It's not necessarily religious, though it's also that. It's the spiritual warfare required to have a towering spirit, to be a man of a, tow- a, a great spirited man. It's actually an effort to, to be that. First of all, to cultivate it within yourself as a man, because you don't just, you're not just handed a great spirit. Like You have to cultivate it and develop it through testing, but then um, like trial, that kind of testing. And then, but to actually be a man of a magnanimous, great spirit in a world that tries to d- diminish men and put them into a little box is very, very difficult. But to be a, a great spirited man is, a, is an act of rebellion. It's a pure act of rebellion today. Not every man can do it, but I think many men aspire to it. Mm-hmm. And maybe that's why, you know, uh, movies like um, Gladiator, Braveheart, et cetera, um, those are the, con- the contemporary versions, but that's why they're so appealing is that 
they depict men of great spirits. I guess they're, they're, they have physical prowess, they can fight, they can lead, they get the girl, all of that. But I think what really calls to us is that these are men of, 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 of a great and towering spirit that we aspire to be. And that, I think, is, has gotten absolutely lost. Mm-hmm. Ab- absolutely lost. But I think it calls to us, and there's a component of a man who, of great spirit who is also, in his own way, a man of letters. Like One of the things that's forgotten about the movie Braveheart is that William Wallace was educated in France. Like he, he grows up in Scotland, and I think his dad takes him away to France, and then he, re- he comes back as Mel Gibson, right? And so we don't see that intervening time where he's in France. That's how he knows how to speak French, so he can romance the French princess. But we don't ever see him being educated. He is not a barbarian. He is an educated man, a highly educated man, but we never see that. And I think that's really important because um, I wanted to talk to you, and maybe we can start talking about it now, the work you're doing with Carolus Press mm-hmm. and these ideas of bringing this, and this is, this is so much of what you do, Arthur, in terms of what you bring history and theater and education and big perspectives and a, and a larger sense of what's going on, of cultivating this notion of a great spirit. So maybe we can start talking about this because this is completely neglected in the dialogue about masculinity today. It's completely neglected. And it's, I think it's pointed at, but I think that's the direction that things are going in. Yeah, I mean, I would really hope so. Yeah. If I'm, if I'm being like, completely honest, when I, first inter- like, when I first came across the masculine space, my reaction was like, what is this? <laughs> like, yeah, I know. Like, they're saying all these things about being a man. I'm like, oh, okay. And when I started writing, you know, I was talking about how, you know, once upon a time, up until, you know, August 2021, primary game plan for me was to be a professional fighter in Thailand um, and Europe. And then at age like 41, 42, I would retire and I would join a monastery, Bolong Monastery or Mount Athos or something of the like. That's definitely a plan. Yeah. <laughs> and <laughs> I said that to somebody and they're like, oh, like monk mode. I was like, no, like actually being a monk. Um, <laughs> I mean, yes, like literally monk mode. Yeah, it's like quite literally, like yeah, I know that that one guy, like I forgot this guy coined the term. It's like yeah, so and so is monk mode protocol. I'm like no, like going to a monastery and being married, <laughs> like basically being bound to the worship of God as a profession, and prayer being a profession. That is such um, a bro thing. You mean like monk mode, bro? Yeah, hundred percent, bro. Yeah, I did monk mode for two months, no drinking. Now I'm getting plastered by the beach, white boy summer. It's like okay, man. Good job. Um, <laughs> I did monk mode for 40 years. <laughs> I was an actual monk. <laughs> it's crazy, crazy experience, bro. Anyway, yeah. Uh, what's that? Uh, pork room? Uh, nice. Ask me, uh, about my, ask me about my morning wake-up routine. Oh, paging Kevin Madrano about his memes about my morning, <laughs> my morning routine of, of waterboarding myself. Apparently, <laughs> apparently that's my morning routine. Um, <laughs> Shout out, Devin. Yeah, shout out, Devin. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, so when I first interacted with the masculine space and people are like throwing all these like, yeah, I like, and I'm not knocking these books. I haven't read any of these books, but I'm not knocking them. These are books that are recent that I've taught people how to be a man, Iron John, um, various Jack Donovan literature, stuff like that. And I was like, okay, um, I, I was taught how to be a man by my father and I was taught how to be a man by Musashi 
and King David and St. Christopher um, and St. George. Otis von Leto Vorbeck, like if we want to get some really niche World War One, so, you know, niche weird. World War One. I, I mean, you know, that's the greatest feat in, in military history, and most people haven't even heard of it. Um, I have not. I would include myself among those people who haven't heard of it. We'll, we'll, we'll get into the the deep schizo World War One more later. Um, Sweet. But, um, Stick around for schizo World War One talk. I, I could, the best I could kind. Do a Twelve hour live stream on that. Um, Don't threaten me with a good time. <laughs> <laughs> there will be a link for that later, guys. Uh, probably June, we <laughs> have a bit more time. It's uh, on my Patreon. No. <laughs> Buy me a coffee. Uh, but, um, I mean, so when I interacted with the masculine space, I was like, cool, I don't need any of this, personally. And at first, I was like a little cynical about it. And I realized, like, there are guys who really don't have a clue. And my example is literally just going outside. And seeing like most men are male, but don't really know how to be men. I was like, Mm -hmm. that's great. I don't really have too much to say about that. I had a lot of people messaging me saying, could you write about masculinity? And I'm like, there are so many guys who are doing a better job of that already. You, Ryan King, uh, Brendan Schmidt, you know, guys who came before you. I think you guys got that space covered. That's not really what I wanted, really what I wanted to do. I wanted to see the cultivation of, a martial spirit and everything that men do. Cause I think that we're in a time that we really need it. And I like an affinity for fiction and poetry. And as they interact with the real world, they're as vital as the reality of getting kicked in the face. Um, so it's, it's dealing with things, both spiritual and material that I think need, that are the next steps of restoring society. I mean, we could get into faith, but, you know, I, me personally, I leave faith to the clergy. So what can I do as a layman? Well, this is, this is essentially what I see my ministry as. And I, I have viewed it that way. I didn't know how like my spiritual father from my church here in Chicago viewed it that way. Him and I had coffee last week and he said, no, it's a great ministry that you, you guys are doing. Cause you know, friends of mine from church, we work out at five in the morning. And then, you know, especially during the great and holy Lent, a lot of us go to hours in Tipica or the morning liturgy when we venerate icons. Like that's we're starting our day with hard training, brotherhood, and faith. So that's that's a, a, a um, that runs parallel to you know everything that is foundational in faith, or really below in terms of the hierarchy. Or you could flip it on its head, say faith is foundation, but building on that foundation or below that hierarchy, whichever angle you want to look at it, um, the martial spirit and the poetic spirit are, I think, are what we need. In society, especially in, in, in the West. Um, and, you know, my, when I was choosing my patron saint, uh, when I was getting baptized last year, it was almost like science sealed and delivered. It was going to be St. George. And then eventually it's like, no, that's not it. Um, and the, the two I was looking at in my own accord were St. Moses the Black of Ethiopia, um, was the greatest quote I've heard by any saint. And I'm paraphrasing, but. Um, you you fast, but Satan does not eat. You uh, you pray, but Satan does not sleep. The only thing you can outwork Satan is humility, because he has none. So that to me was like this very powerful quote mm. by a formerly deadly man who became a monk. And the other was Saint Christopher, the strong man. Saint Constantine made himself known in a month out from baptism, and I spoke to my then spiritual father, and I said, I didn't really expect any of this. Um, and when you look at the you look at 
what runs parallel with uh, St. Constantine's, you know, struggling faith. It's making a previously pagan empire Christian. That, I mean, Roman emperors had been killed for less in the past. Like, they've been killed for looking at someone funny. I was like, that's putting, that's putting, your, uh, that's putting your life on the line, to say the least. Converting an entire army to Christianity before battle, because you, you saw in the sky across through the sun conquer. So these are like martial things, martial things that run parallel to the faith. These are decisions of society that run parallel to the faith that are also important. He was dealing in the material world. He, had a, he created a gold-backed currency to um, prevent inflation in the Roman Empire. He brought, together the, the, he brought together the clergy to create the Nicene Creed, the Council of Nicaea. Um, so he did a bunch of cultural restoration things that weren't necessarily direct work for the church, but they were helping society. And if I had to have a view, and this is originally something that was going to be very individual when you and I last spoke, I was like, Hey, I'm going to be a fighter. If that inspires you. Great. Um, if, uh, you know, here's a book, if you like it, great. I'm going to a monastery. If it has an impact, cool, whatever. And then I got people messaging me saying, Hey, what do you think of this? I'm like, Oh no, no, I, no, I'm not social. Like, don't, don't, don't think, don't think I'm going to respond. Um, and then eventually turned into, and turned into to leadership. Um, when I left, uh, when I knew I was going to leave San Francisco, my last service at the cathedral, um, I knew I was going to start anti-fragile fitness, which is then called blood and train to work with guys directly on cultivating as a, with a bedrock of training, these aspects of masculinity that need to be built upon, which is that martial spirit and that poetic spirit and that reverent spirit. Um, and, you know, Andrew, uh, the, the Saxon cross, we made a bunch of jokes and memes of his name as being the, you know, the saxophone cross, you know, we, we, we always have to mention it in every recording just so he rolls his eyes. But um, he I can hear him, it now. Yeah. Him and, uh, him and Nick Zenobio, they had the idea for Carol's Press, which was like consolidating all of our efforts culturally um, and rhetorically and poetically. And these long form essays we have as sort of ideas for cultural restoration in the future, consolidating our efforts to make that difference on, on the side of things that isn't necessarily martial, but is still vital. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's, I remember you were talking to me when I think it wasn't long after you came up with the name or the vision for anti-fragile fitness. And I remember I really, I really liked the, um, I really liked the focus and the emphasis. And I, I think it is very important um, I know it's important. In fact, it's essential for men to cultivate more than just their bodies. So the way that the way that I identified kind of the way that the masculinity space has been going for uh, a while is you have some men that are very fixated on cultivating their bodies, and you have some men that are very very fixated on cultivating their hearts, right? They're emotional. Like you have a, you, know, you have like that. Because that's the world that I came out of, like the Mankind Project, Iron John, Robert Bly, which is not really about the body in so much as like a, in a physical training sense, but in a somatic emotional experience sense. That's the world that I came from. And then I found my way in the other side, which is like the red pill where men cultivate their body. So it's this dialogue between the heart and the body, right? Mm -hmm. Heart is the emotional center. And then, um, but I always found that dialogue to be very limited because those two guys, they don't talk to each other very much. It drives me nuts that they don't because they need each other but they don't talk to each other very much. It's a big pain. But the way that you've solved that is with men cultivating their minds. Mm -hmm. Now, the problem is not every man is blessed with a mind able to tackle or have interest in these topics. 
right? Like you can, you can take a man and you can subject him to physical training and develop, he'll develop his physical strength. Maybe he won't be able to, you know, to rip 800 pounds off the floor, Mm -hmm. but certainly he can develop, he can develop strength. But there's a component of a, of, of a person's mind when it encounters a concept that it just cannot lift, that it may never actually be able to lift that concept. And so naturally, the dialogue tends, but every man has a heart, every man feels emotions, they're very relatable. So one of the things that I think happens is like this notion of intellectual cultivation gets kind of stifled off to the side. But then Jordan Peterson comes along and proves that even if people don't understand everything that he's saying, at least they find like they're drawn to it because there's some, there's some, there's some uh, excellence about it, right? And so I think to me that always spoke to men do have interest in doing these things. You just have to present it in the right way. And when you put the heart together with the body, together with the mind, the next thing is the spirit. That's the next thing. And you don't, it, this doesn't have to be in a religious sense. It can be, but it doesn't necessarily have to be. Mm-hmm. This can grow a man into a towering spirit, and those are the kind of men we need. But we have to get past this dialogue between like, oh, you weak men with all your emotional sensitivity, or you strong, you strong guys with all your macho bravado. It's like, if you fuse those two things together, that's what you can start building off of. And what I like about what you've always done is you, ha- you, you came in preloaded with the advantage of having a father who taught you many things about masculinity already. So you didn't have to learn all that remedial stuff, mm-hmm. right? Well, for many men, it's remedial. So remedial is based on the word remedy. Like you, have to, you didn't have to learn that remedial stuff. So you were able to start from a head start and get moving on these other really important topics. I don't know that that's acknowledged enough how much leadership you do in that regard. It's very, very important. And it shows by the men you attract to you. I appreciate that. Uh, yeah, I mean, if I'm being honest, I've had a couple of instances in my life where you know, most people who know me pretty well know I'm, I mean, I'm an only child, right? Uh, I didn't have, I didn't grow up with any extended family. Uh, now I'm, you know, I'm a divorced kid, right? So, and, and I, I bounced from school to school, not because I was getting kicked out or anything. Uh, well, maybe, you know, I almost got kicked out of one high school for fighting, but I left, maybe a little bit. Kicked, I left before they could kick me out. So, yeah. um, I, uh, you know, I've always, I've always been able to enjoy my own company, keep to myself. I could probably live alone for the rest of my life and actually be okay. That's, mm. I know that's not really the norm. And I, but I found myself thrown into leadership situations. Like, you know, the first one was like Boy Scouts growing up. I was in a, a troop that's now a hundred plus years old. I don't even know what the state of the Boy Scouts is. I know it's probably not good. No, uh, it's just the Scouts. Yeah. <sighs> I'm, I'm not even kidding, really. Yeah, I know. It's just cringe. Uh, but, the, um, the cringe scouts. Cringe scouts, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sign me up. Yeah, that's the, that's the, only, uh, the only way to call it, unfortunately. But, um, <laughs> yeah. You know, I was, uh, t- to get, you know, for people who aren't familiar, the first three ranks, you, you go up by, you know, demonstrating, you know, skill acquisition in a bunch of different things, you know, uh, first aid, uh, camping, all that. And then for, what is it? Star Scout, Life Scout, and Eagle Scout, you need to hold a leadership position. And that doesn't always mean direct leadership. So there's like quartermaster, which is the guy who takes care of all the gear. My troop had its own building and a shed where I could keep all the gear. So I was like, okay, I'll do that because I like keeping it myself. Uh, summer camp, though, a lot of people noticed that a lot of the other guys, some of the younger guys too, below me, were really flocking to what I had to say. They were hanging out every word. And they're like, you should be a patrol leader. And I was like, no, absolutely not. 
Mm-hmm. And uh, and I went to the Scoutmaster for the next term, and I said, hey, I just want to keep being quartermaster. He's like, no, I'm not going to let you. You should be a patrol leader. I was like, okay, I'll piss off. Um, <laughs> was a pass. I, was, I was like, uh, no thanks. And he's like, yeah, well, I'm not giving you anything but you know the opportunity to run patrol leader. I was like, cool. Um, came patrol leader, then I became senior patrol leader six months later, which is leader of the troop at about 15 years old. Uh, so I was running about 100 guys, a lot of whom were older than me. And it stuck. And I did that twice. Um, so this isn't the first time I've been thrown in a leadership kind of role that I didn't really want. Uh, I, I like these creators who could just be anonymous and say what they need to say and then just leave, not explain, you know, um, and not be accountable for it. Yeah. And I, I, I will continually defend a lot of anonymous posters because I do believe you can't have a direct impact with people's lives being anonymous, but you can push some ideas further because they can't discredit it by having a face like oh he only believes this because he's a cisgender white male like no you don't know what this person is he has a he has a profile picture of i don't know a squirrel and he just says something that's making you rethink your entire you know bug man existence right so i right. think i think there's value in that provided that right. you're on our side um but yeah and it's it's um the guys who have come to anti-credible fitness and the guys who have come to me um in, in other capacities, it's a, it's a blessing. It really is a blessing to, you know, speak on things that I, I thought were obvious, honestly. And I'm not saying that as like a, as like a, oh, really? You don't even know? And it's just like, oh, <laughs> like I, for some reason, I just thought other people knew this. So yeah, here's A, B, C, D, E, F, and G. Um, it's been a, it's, it's been a blessing seeing guys, you know, obviously physically transform. I mean, I had a guy put on, Shout out to Nick Tax, putting on what was like 100, 120 pounds in a squat in like six months. Just an absurd jump. Oh, okay. Um, I was going to say he added 120 pounds of muscle. I'm like, that's nuts. Okay. That's a whole person. He became a different kind of being. No. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Have you seen The Incredible Hulk? It's a documentary. Humanity has evolved through anti fitness. <laughs> uh, I'm not going to Sun's good for you. Anyway. Um, and uh, yeah, so it's it's been it's not only been a blessing to see things like that, but it's been a blessing to see guys get their life in order um, with another communal aspect down the line in mind. Because I think the one criticism of like Petersonian rhetoric has been it's like well, it depends on what you mean by successful. Like oh well, like, yeah, the 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 weaseliness when you really try to pin it down to something. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So it's just like that. That's not too many steps away from well this means this to me, like woman means this to me or that, you know, things that are clearly tangible and real saying, well, this means this means like, well, that's not what it actually is. So being grounded in the reality of the world around you in many capacities under God, um, within your nation, within your community, um, bringing that back to the world around you for the sake of becoming something greater than yourself, being tied to something greater than yourself, not just being an island. Um, that's being stressed more and more in AFF and, uh, and in Kerala. So it's, it's been a blessing and, um, I have a lot of, a lot of work ahead of me. Um, mm. I'm finally, you know, at a state where my body's ready to compete. So I'll be fighting in a, in a tournament this year and then I'm, I'm getting married this year. I'll be, um, moving to Glasgow for three months to work in person, uh, with some admins, uh, for AFF to scale the business and scale. And, and further develop frameworks of personal development that are based on the training. Um, 
I'm still, I still have a couple of books I'm working on. It's taking a bit more time. It always takes more time. Um, and there's a lot of other things that Carolus is planning uh, for you know, book clubs and long form essays that we're hoping, you know, catch legs. I have a long form essay I'm writing on Substack about the death of postmodernism. I have a long form essay I'm writing about anti-culture. Um, so there's a lot of work ahead of me. I don't really know where I'm going to find the time for all of it, but uh, mm. it's this, this is how I make my living now. And uh, I couldn't, couldn't be happier about it. That's better than uh, late night security, right? I mean, to be fair, I started Blood and Rain with those late night security shifts. So mm-hmm. that was uh, that's where this all started. Um, well, you know, the second iteration. Um, the, I first wrote Blood and Rain literally five years ago now, uh, almost to the day mm. after my first Pasca. Um, and... Uh, yeah, I mean, it's. I'm, I look honestly, I look back on those days of overnight security quite fondly now because I came back to God through that crucible after being gone for so long, um, and I started all this work. I started my extensive research that really tied together my methodology of training with those overnight security shifts, um, and you know, I, I met my soon-to-be fiance through you know something I wrote that she shared on my birthday. So. That hellish, sleep-deprived, malnourished crucible in the city that I love that was going through hell started all this. So I, I couldn't be more thankful for it. I mean, you took advantage of the opportunity that was presented to you, right? Like, okay, well, I'm going to do this thing that I feel called to do, and I'm going to make use of the circumstances that I have available to me in order to do it, right? I'm not Because a lot of people would say, plenty of men actually would say, Oh well, I've got this late night security job, and like I don't really have the time because I stay up overnight. Versus, you take advantage of the circumstances and say, "I've got all this time. No one's around. I'll just start doing the thing." You know, what a better, what a better environment. And that's and that's that's really important because um, many men do use their circumstances as an excuse um, when you can actually turn them into the reason to do the thing or the opportunity to to do the thing. And that's a mind that's a mindset shift. Mm-hmm. That I think is is what separates men who create things from men who don't, right? And that, that's I mean that's anti fragility one hundred and one. The reason why it's called anti fragile fitness is, I mean, our source text is uh, anti fragile by Nassim Taleb, who the author of which like doesn't uh, really exemplify his own principle, but he clearly no. sells something absolutely incredible. Um, and the the premise is there's no word in the English lexicon that's the direct opposite of fragile. Um, we have robust, which is just resistant to pressure and randomness. But to be truly the opposite of fragile, we need to get better with resistance and, and randomness. Mm. Um, and, you know, I had the most random pressure of losing all my, you know, losing my jobs, thanks to Uncle Gavin, uh, during COVID-1984 and all that. Everyone's favorite. Uh, <laughs> um, and I said, okay, well, what can I gain from this? And And that's... That's the aspect, that's the way I want people to view their lives and view fitness too. You know, the whole point of the training methodology now is the guy says to me, hey, Jim's closed for some reason. Uh, How can I maintain the progressions you wrote for me? What do I do? I'm like, okay, well, what do you have available? Like, I have a tree branch. Cool. Is it attached to a tree? Yeah. (laughs) I I have a a stone. I I have a really crappy hotel gym with dumbbells. Cool. We'll make something happen. You know, we're going to be, your fitness will remain. Anti-fragile. So the programming itself is anti-fragile, 
But then there's also the fact that the program is designed for you to tackle any situation. Because in this day and age, especially as men, and I'm training women now as well, which has been way more successful than I thought it would be. Um, but for men especially, you need to be ready in the gap of a split second. There's no like, hey, I need my protein shake or hey, I need this, hey, I need that. Like, we're not living in the post-war surplus anymore. We're living in a in in dire circumstances where you have the choice to be a great man or not. So are you going to be mm-hmm. prepared and anti-fragile or are you going to be fragile and dead? Mm-hmm. Your choice. Yeah, I, I was listening to a podcast and uh, someone said the other day, that there are two kinds of men, those who run, when there's an explosion, they run towards the explosion and other men run away from the explosion. And that I think is, um, I think that's a real clear dividing line at this point. Like maybe there are some men that desire to be the kind of men who run towards the explosion, but that just means that, that they're already that they just have to train themselves in, in that direction. Because I, I don't know that you can train a desire to run towards explosion into a man. I think you either have that or you don't. And I think since 2020, the call has gone out to men to begin responding to this, even if they didn't know what they were listening to, right? Because I started the Renaissance of Men in 2020. You started Blood and Rain in 2020, as I recall, right? And I, I can think of plenty of other people who got baptized, started businesses, right? And, and it wasn't even in response to some civilizational level crisis at the time, because it, it wasn't yet the way that it's become. Yeah, because I started I started the Renaissance of Men. I had the idea in say like July 2020, and I started it because I had been studying the masculinity space for I guess at that point eight years, and I I had sort of systematized all the information. Like this is what all these different men are doing, and this is how it's a holistic thing. And now I want to go share that this holistic thing exists. I want to share it with people, and I want to do that through a podcast, right? And do it through one-on-one mentorship and coaching. That's what I thought I was going to be doing. And it's changed into something very different since then, which is, which is great. But what's become apparent over that time, coming up on three years now, is that this was some intuitive response to a civilizational crisis, and I'm just one of the men responding to it. And, I can, and all the men that I have in my life now are all responding to it in the same way, in their, but in their own unique ways. Like We all sense something is going on, and we're, like, we're furiously building for the future for the time that when the storm comes, right? Maybe it'll never come. Who knows? Pro- it probably will. But when the storm comes so that we have our castles, our fortresses built so that we can endure it and weather it and be the survivors for whatever the next thing is. I don't know what that looks like. I don't, I'm not predicting anything. But there's a sense that, like, for example, why do, um, why do, uh, why do bears start storing up for the winter? Like, they're not sitting there being like, well, I think winter's coming. I should probably get some food or start storing things up. It's an instinct that that nature has built into them to start doing that. And I think we're many of us feel that. Now, that doesn't mean that the end is like a year away or five years away. Or, who knows? Who knows? But I think it's significant that many men's instincts are tuned that we need to start doing this now. And it all started at around the same time. And that's that to me is is very, a very provocative, undeniable fact. What it means, who knows? But I think it's it signals signal something. And so now here we are, like two, three years later, you and me in particular, because it's been two and a half years or so, two years or so since we last chatted, and we've been building, yeah, right. Which is why it's cool to reconnect and see what you've been building since then, and, and what I've been building since then. And maybe it'd be interesting for people to go back and listen to what the dialogue was back in 
you said February of 21, yeah. right? Versus I, w- I would be curious, maybe I'll go back and, and listen and, and see how we've both evolved as men just in the way that we communicate with each other and the way that we communicate about ourselves. Absolutely. I think it'd be pretty night and day. I mean, at the same yeah. time, it feels like, you know... I had no idea what I was doing, so... <laughs> oh, wait, no, I still don't. So. Yeah, falling upward, you know. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it was a fascinating time, to say the least, yeah. back then. And, you know, yeah. Um, we're, in a, in a, we're in a much different kind of uh, fascinating time now. And, mm. um, I'm a lot less black-pilled about the future than a lot of guys, you know. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I, I'm not going to lie, I really do enjoy some of the memes of, like, you know, Man wakes up to a bunch of friends in balaclava saying, Wake up, what are you doing? Things have got worse. <laughs> like, like, some of the level of schizo memes are just hilarious. I'm like, If only you knew how bad things really were. Oh, I saw one yesterday that was like, Hey, for, you know, the guy in the tank who's turning around, like, it's like, you know, it's, it's, don't worry, it's not bad, it's gonna get way worse. You know, that, that meme. Yeah. So, that I guess I, I saw a revision of that one that said, Hey, friend, you know how I said it's gonna get way worse? And then it shows like drag queen, whatever. And it's like, it's starting. <laughs> <laughs> I'll send it to you. Yeah. Like, <laughs> <laughs> hey. I told you, you want to wake up yet, bro? Or, yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, yeah, it's, it's, uh, I'm, I'm really not that black pilled about the future. Me neither. Um, you know, I'm, I'm, I could give you a 20 minute geopolitical an- uh, analysis. I could give you. Okay domestic analysis i could give you a spiritual analysis um those are all basically the same thing in their own way yeah i mean they're different they're different aspects of the same shift right yeah Um, yeah you know and there's a bunch of people that i defer to for geopolitics there's a bunch of people like yeah you ever mention um you know factors of things right um but I, I think just like being blackpilled is a is a cause for inaction, right? Mm-hmm. It's like imagine you're so blackpilled and you look back and there's an opportunity where you could have done something to change something, to, to shift the tide, you know, change the tide, and you just didn't because you were like, yeah. it's it's over, bro. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> we're so back. It's so over. We're um, so back. So I just I I skip that step. You know, people say like, oh, it's over. We took a loss. Who cares? Seriously, yeah. who cares? Mr. Campbell, who cares? Um, <laughs> um, it's like, well, it's over. Well, even if that were true, who cares? Like, I'm still here. You still have two hands. The kingdom of heaven is is upon us. Not next week, not yesterday. Now, all the time, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Yep. Maybe be maybe not be found fallen and idle, but upright and watching an activity, ready to accompany him into the joy and divine palace of his glory. Plain and simple. You're either ready or you're not. It doesn't matter the given circumstances around you. That is your choice as a man. Um, so yeah, once again, it's, it's very simple choices for each and every man that we just really love to overcomplicate. Um, but I, I'm, what I'm excited to see is how these the, the work of you and myself and our friends develops because someone you know someone I want to speak to uh, on my podcast once Lent is over because I haven't done anything like outside of like Orthodox content or adjacent Christian content during Lent for the podcast. But um, I want to speak to uh, TJ Reeves. Oh yeah, you should definitely talk to TJ. Love that guy. Him and, I spoke, it. him and I spoke on the phone for about an hour just about acts. Uh, for those people who haven't listened to that. Uh, episode of the renaissance of men podcast it's probably my favorite i would definitely really oh yeah 
Yeah. Right, right. right to the jump, and I'm like, this guy is, you know, high thumos, yeah. highly compartmentalized, deeply efficient. Like this is this guy gets it, you know. Um mm-hmm. my kind of guy for sure. I'll link the, um, I'll link that podcast in the show notes. Definitely, yeah, I would I, I would definitely recommend everyone <laughs> listen to it. Um he he understands the, the the situation at hand and he's working to build something that is a parallel network to the you know the the quote unquote coming doom that we have ahead of us in blockchain based land ownership. One of the hot like the hottest contested debates in in the sort of you know new blank wing political sphere is you know is 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 blockchain really viable? Is it a psyop, right? And you know right from the jump it's it's confused with the CBDC when really it's it's something that if you actually look at the rhetoric of the powers that be the current regime they say you know they they kind of obfuscate it to the point where you're realizing they're creating a false dichotomy of either it's you know it's a government controlled thing or it's this radical thing that needs to be shut down and neither are actually true maybe you could say radical in the sense that it erodes the power of the current regime which is a good thing um but there's no way in which government can actually, they can, they can regulate it. They can say, hey, you can't own Bitcoin, but it's very difficult to enforce. Um, so I'm looking forward to see, seeing how projects like his develop, projects like the Renaissance of Man, projects like Careless. Um, you know, there are people who are very much rooted in regenerative farming. Um, you know, people who like even Ty Lopez is, is mm-hmm. working with Joel Saladin um, to really, help. yeah. Ty Lopez is working Ty with Joel. Cringe Lopez, yes, he is. He's decidedly less cringe and working with Joel Saladin for the sake of regenerative farming in this country. He's borrowing some of some of Joel Saladin's non-cringe cred. Yeah, exactly. He is so like L.A. cringe, uh, but uh. And he's, he's just taking a step in the right direction in that regard. Um, you know, in efforts that, in, in my mind, you know, I, I've been very open about the fact that I ripped off the mod, the format for my podcast on the Jocko podcast. But I'm also ripping off like a long-term pursuit from Jocko, which is Origin. He's like, why can't we make jujitsu geese here? Like, why can't we make jujitsu geese here in America? We can't. I'll do it. Do it in Maine, where I'm from. I'll have domestic manufacturing, pay people a living wage, teach them a skill. You know what else Americans wear? Jeans. We'll make jeans too. We'll make boots too. And it's like, that's, you know, the return of domestic manufacturing. Um, that's another project I want to see, that kind of movement see happen. So be interesting to see where we are two years from now, you know, as men and in terms of these projects and how these projects are interacting with each other. It's probably the most exciting thing to come from our neck of the internet. And if it stayed just on the internet, it would just be it would be like theory cell circle jerky nonsense. Mm-hmm. And I, I think a lot of people, people, you know, younger cats have messaged me saying, how do we get back to the sphere the way it was like in 2021 when it first came out? Why would you, you want that? Yeah. I was like, yeah, man, it was a lot of fun. Like when we first met letters from the ruins and totally not an Acreon and greater myth and neoliberate and the Saxon cross and all these people. It was, it was so much Jonathan West, all these people was, is a lot of fun getting to know everybody, but you know, writing some cool posts on Instagram isn't the end all be all. We are actually supposed to take that somewhere and that's what we're doing. now. Well, it's, it's actually, it's actually war now. (laughs) 
I mean, I mean, <laughs> uh, I think I'll probably, I'm probably just going to title this podcast just war. <laughs> nice. No, but I mean, it really is the case because, and that's, that's come about, I don't know, in the past year or so, as it's become really clear, it ha- this has been clear to me for a while, but it's becoming increasingly clear to more people that we're not just living through an economic war. We're not just living through a political war or a cultural war. It's spoken now in the open and it's understood that we are in a spiritual war. That is mm-hmm. what is happening. And if we are in a spiritual war, then um, a spiritual war doesn't confine itself to a geographic landmass. And the spiritual war is conceptualized and described in, in a particular religion called Christianity. And the, the two sides of the spiritual war, they're fighting for the whole earth. The whole mm-hmm. earth is the battlefield. It's been going on for a long time. And if that's the case, we can't just go back to the 2020 days and say, oh, we have to fight to win an election. This is not about an election or we have to fight, you know, or we have to fight to win um, some sort of cultural battle, you know, uh, uh, over, over whatever hot button issue of the day. No, this is the war is totalizing. It wants your soul. It wants your family. What is it that James White, one of the elders of my church, he says, they want your, um, they want your offspring and your, gosh, he was talking about the, he's talking about the jab too. Anyway, so he's basically saying they want your bloodstream and they want your offspring, mm-hmm. right? Like it doesn't get more total than that, yeah. right? They want, they want to indoctrinate your kids and they want to inhabit with chemicals your, your bloodstream and your, we might say, spiritual configuration. That's a whole other topic. And that's it, period, forever. And you talk about central bank digital currencies and crypto. You know, this is, they, wanna, they want to be able to switch you off from the grid. That's what exactly, that's what they are. That's what a central bank digital currency is. If you, if you do wrong, think your money goes away Bye. Mm-hmm. you know, and Elon Musk talking about Neuralink with a chip in your head, all these things. Like, like it's, it's wild to be talking about these things. They're real and they're physical manifestations of a spiritual war. And it, it, by 2023, there's almost no excuse. Certainly by 2024, there's almost no excuse for a man to not acknowledge that reality. Yeah. By, by by this by this time next year, right? But then, but then also, I think men are seeing it in their own lives. They're seeing it in their own hearts. They're seeing it in their own in their own bodies. That you can blind your eyes to the war and not see it, but it's going to show up at your front door. It's going to knock on the door. It's going to show up in your wife. It's going to show up in your friends. It's going to show up in your kids and schools. Like it's everywhere. And what are you going to do? Like you can't ignore it forever. That clock is running out. So you either show up and fight that war or you surrender. And we talked about the masculinity space. As I predicted, that war has now come into the masculinity space where you have a, you have a real war for the soul of who's going to be talking about what men are and are for, mm-hmm. right? The old guard is passing away. They're victims of their own egos for the most part. And so the alternatives being presented are Christianity or um, Andrew Tate, though not necessarily him specifically, but the bot, but what he represents. And so men are recognizing that we can't even talk about masculinity now, nor should we, nor have we really ever been able to without it being spiritual in a good sense, not like spiritual religious, but in a spiritual sense. And look, I don't make the rules. I just work here. <laughs> I And I got... You, you can do 12 hours about, you know, schizo World War I stuff. I can do 12 hours 
easy about all the spiritual dimensions of the war that we're in mm -hmm. right now, right? And, and again, to get back to the why are men storing up for the winter, this instinct has been triggered in our minds that we need to start doing that. It's all related to the same thing. And even Doug Wilson, Doug Wilson's a jovial, conciliatory man. But even in one of his videos, I think it was last week, he was talking about hard conflict is coming. We don't know what it'll look like, but hard conflict is coming. And that was jarring to hear him use the, word, the phrase hard conflict. And I think we all know this. And, and um, the only thing preventing men from really, really being forced to acknowledge it is the illusion of normalcy. You walk around, everything looks normal. It's all, you know, there's no, nothing too wild going on in the streets. I went for a walk this morning. Everything looks normal, but there's a sense behind the scenes that things are very, very not normal. When will that shift? And will you be ready when it does? I think that's the big question. I mean, you, you're, you're kind of mentioning why I keep saying war in all caps, right? <laughs> yes. I think, I think, you know, even Letters from the Ruins, who I know very well, you know, gotten somewhat close with him. Because him and I have a lot of the same views on a lot of different things. Is that the British guy? Yeah. Yeah. It, it couldn't, couldn't be anything but British. Just um, the way that he writes. I, yeah. Well, I, I remember, I think I listened to your podcast with him. Did you do a podcast with him? I think I did I listen do, to him. Do him yeah. yeah. And uh, he's, he's pure, pure Anglo, like unapologetic Anglo. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. But he even misunderstood this when him and I did the first uh, panel for Carolus Press. You know, he kind of joked. He's like, right, you need to have that, you know, that certain bit of play. And I was just like, mm -hmm. <laughs> And he, he said to me, like, right, so if we were playing Mario Kart, you'd walk in and be like, what's the ROI of this? Like, what's going on? You'd just scream. And I was like, no, I typically don't push things on people. I'm like, oh, okay, well, if you guys are wasting time, great. I'm going to go do something else. Um, and he says, you know, generationally, it's supposed to be a bit of play with children. And, although you may, you know, enact pure fascism on your children and just scream war all the time. And I was just like... <laughs> And I said, you know, it's it's kind of um, it's a misunderstanding why I say it. I think people think some people think I say it to be a loudmouth. I think some people say it think I say it because it's cool, it gets views, it rouses people to action. That part, that second part, is true. But the real reason for it is, you know, when you were saying all that, Will, I had like a really vivid memory come back up of about fall of 2017. Mm. I um. I had made the decision that I would not work in Silicon Valley and I, yeah. um, and that I would, you know, I would pursue martial arts and I pursue writing and pursue orthodoxy and to be paid for that. I was a bouncer in a bar back seven days a week and I was barely making ends meet. And I just remember getting off work one Saturday night with a, you know, I think I've told you some cheeky stories the last ever quarter of like girls who, you know, were trying to get a certain thing for me. And I was like, no. And they're just like, really? I'm like, yeah, no. And just like dumbfounded. Like, I don't, I don't sleep around. Mm. Going to be a monk someday. So yeah, don't care. Um, but I, I got home and actually that <laughs> my coworker who was trying to get a certain thing for me, she, yeah. you know, the, the one effective thing she did was show me a song, right? I'm, I'm, I have headphones in my ears. We're closing up. I'm doing my bar back grind. I'm playing Bring Me the Horizon and, you know, uh, Black Flag and, you know, all these crazy 
the high through most erratic songs. It's the most Arthur thing I've ever heard. <laughs> yeah, I mean, as soon as as soon as the bar would close, everyone else would be like, "Yeah, man, let's take a shot." I'll remember that one stupid customer who forgot, like that kind of banter. Drinking their tips. In. Yeah, I've, I have headphones in. I'm like, I got to train after work, guys. So I'm picking up the pipes. I'm falling down. So I have this in my ears. I'm sprinting, trying to clean everything, and she stops me and says, "Hey, can I play a song for you?" Kind of a hipster girl, and I was like, "Yeah, sure, why not." And she plays um, Roads by Portishead. And not bad. Yeah, I know. I was like, it was good. But the lyrics of it stopped me dead in my tracks. Because can't everybody see we have a war to fight? Mm. And I got home after training. I was sitting, you know, I'd recently gotten a room somewhere in the Bay Area. Um, and <laughs> I just, it was four in the morning. I just sat there. It was a very, you know, woodsy neighborhood lots of trees lot of tree cover so it's a certain somber los gatos no not los Los gatos uh (laughs) good guess but not los gatos yeah um and i just sat there like thinking to myself no one around me has a fucking clue i don't think i'm crazy i'm sure a lot of people would accuse me of that but they're just asleep. Mm-hmm. And I don't know what to do about it. It's 22 and I had no clue what to do about it. And I was like, what do I do from here? I don't even think my parents get it. And my parents, you know, are, are kind of savvy to this sort of thing. They're more sensitive to this kind of thing, but I don't even think they get it. No, even people in the gym that I fight at it don't get it. Mm-hmm. And to me, I said, I guess I am completely alone in the world then. And the yeah. only thing, the only thing that I feel called to do is to write and to fight. And when I can't do that anymore, I will try to be with God. I will try to pray to God and hope that I will get into his kingdom. That's it. Nothing more. And what was refreshing about, you know, the beginning of all this, like during COVID, because I was delivering food for DoorDash on my bicycle in downtown Oakland, a place that was descending into madness, especially during George Floyd. I remember remember getting off work in downtown Oakland, and I saw someone spray painted on the cardboards of buildings boarded up saying, the night is dark and full of terrors. And I saw the horde coming down Broadway. And I said, everyone has lost their fucking minds. It has gotten, it's gotten worse far sooner than I ever could have possibly imagined. I tried ignoring this for a little bit and I can't ignore it. It's real. It's as real as I thought it was back in 2017. And that's how blood and rain is born. And there are more people who are receptive to that. But even now, people still aren't getting. And this isn't like some kooky, you know, I had one customer in a, when I was bartending in Oakland who'd come up, you know, it's a Monday night. It's just me, the bouncer, and my bar back. And he's, he's looking at us. We're, we have, we're building a good rapport with this new customer. He says, hey, man, it's the police. And we're like, what? He says, hey, man, it's the police. And I was like, what's the police? Like, they're listening to us right now. And we're like, Oh, okay, man. <laughs> like, it's not like that. 
It's just very obvious. There is a war in and for every man's soul. There is a war for your country, the soul of your country. There is a war, like you said, for your bloodstream, for your offspring. There is a war for the minds of your women. They're not, they're not coming to rape your women. They're coming to subvert their minds. There is a war for every single last aspect of life. There is a war between discipline and sloth. There is a war between reverence and a blank mind that can be easily programmed. There's war in every single last little thing. And I can't pretend that there isn't. Yep. So that's why I kind of just scream like, I, I'll say war, like in various group chats. Good morning. War, GM, war, GM, war. Uh. And, you know, a, a mutual friend of ours, Jeremiah, said to me one day, he said, yeah. I Shout should- out, Jeremiah. Shout out Jeremiah Hendry. Um, he says to me, yeah, I just, the one thing I don't really relate with with AFF is just, you know, war posting. And I was just like, do you think that's just some meathead sort of like, ah, we're going to go out there and it's Mad Max and it's all coming down and, you know, we're going to shoot each other and get each other's land and new warlords and BAP was right. No, no. <laughs> like, this isn't some BAP revamp. Like there's no Mad Max scenario in the future where these these feudal warlords, yeah, the military industrial complex is winner take all. Nukes exist now, so war- theoretically, theoretically, yeah, yeah. Nope, nope, nope. Back on there. Um, you know, <laughs> like there's these subtle conflicts of life in every single day, but it's not much of a battle cry for me to say subtle, tasteful quasi conflict in various aspects of living like that doesn't make for a very good battle cry no war the end like the end and he says okay now, now he's like saying war in the chat messaging me this like war yeah war okay war and that's why i'm saying all that it's not to be a meathead it's not to be loud it's not to gain likes it's a reminder there is a war in and for every man's soul and everything surrounding it and adjacent to it that man creates and you're either winning or you're losing until death. Plain and simple. There is no getting around that. And before I shut out the world because I thought I was alone in that view, but now I know that I'm not. And hopefully, like you said, in a year's time, enough people have been woken up. And there's a lot of, you know, I, I consume a lot of like elite theory content, whether it's, you know, Carlisle or Vika or all these great elite theorists. But someone somewhere is going to be adjacent to that. But Right now, it actually does matter how many people are aware of this. That is the goal at this moment in time. Hi, everyone. Quick word about my upcoming Reformation Coffee series, Will Reforms His Coffee. As you can probably tell, I'm pretty excited about it. In an earlier episode, I talked about how I'm a fan of drip coffee, like diner coffee. I don't know why, I just like it. But with a coffee sponsor, I should probably learn what I'm doing. So Brandon Lansdowne, the chief roaster and founder of Reformation Coffee, has advised me on some simple supplies to get started reforming my coffee experience. Pour over, AeroPress, scales with timers, all that stuff. So I'm a bit curious and a little bit intimidated, to be honest, not because it seems like a lot, but because I know myself well enough to know I'm a slow starter but being a slow starter is better than being a no starter. So coming up in future episodes for Reformation May, you'll hear me taking a coffee adventure one cup at a time. 
featuring Reformation coffee beans roasted by none other than the man himself, Brandon Lansdowne. What is Reformation May, you might be wondering? One step at a time. I will probably be starting with the Guatemala roast, since that's the one that I know and like the best, at least so far. In those episodes, I'll walk you through the process of what I'm learning, what my experiences are, and what I'm discovering about how to taste and enjoy coffee. Who knows, maybe after that I'll try whiskey, and then cigars, and then wine. And that's part of the adventure. Learning how to taste, savor, and enjoy things that are just part of everyday life. And since coffee is part of my life, and I'd like Reformation Coffee to be part of yours, I hope to show you through my experience why Reformation Coffee is right for you. But if you want to get a head start on it, go to ReformationCoffee.com and enter the code SUBFREE to get one free bag of coffee with your monthly subscription. I hope you'll come along with me on this adventure, and I'll see you in Reformation May. It's funny, when you started posting war, whenever that was, I think I I understood it intuitively. I wouldn't have been able to articulate all the dimensions of it, but I, I understood that that was the spirit, that it wasn't a, it wasn't a meathead thing, you know, it was also that, but it was like, there was more, there was much more, yeah, right. There, there was much more behind the scenes um, in terms of, of the meaning. Like it wasn't just a, it wasn't just a, a particular form of battle cry about what you're supposed to yell when you walk into the gym. It's about a total approach to life. And now here's, and now here's, here's the thing. Here's the thing that might not be obvious about it. It's that it's not that you're necessarily declaring war. It's also that, but it's that war has been declared on us. That's the thing. And that you, I've said this multiple times on different podcasts. War was declared on humanity openly in 2020. That's what COVID was. It was a declaration of war on humanity. That all of your freedoms, that all of your civil liberties, all of your money, all of your mind, all your freedom of thought was all going to be taken in for eternal bondage. Total declaration of war. In fact, the way that I articulated is that the long march to the institutions was successful. That's Gramsci. You know, over the course of 50, 60, 70, 80 years, however long that was. And, and COVID was a coordinated, all of the institutions turned at once on to become parasitic on the people. Now, it had been happening slowly, gradually for decades, but 2020 was no longer, it was undeniable that they had all turned on the people. And, and, and the thing is, most people who aren't attuned to differences in their environment, because everything changed simultaneously all at once, people didn't perceive a change because they couldn't sense the spiritual valence of what had just happened. But, but that declaration of war was made and war has been waged and is being waged against us daily, weekly. If only mind war psyops one after another who knows what they're even about anymore probably the psyop is just to get you thinking like this is obviously a psyop so you get trapped trying to figure out what the psyop is there's that's the only thing is like just get your brain turning on it and so we we're under assault from all these different all these different angles and i think you were the first person in what you articulated to verbally declare war back with the word yeah. <laughs> right it's not conceptual it's not men do hard things. It's not show up. There's all these different ways that we can encapsulate the same spirit as a response to the circumstances that we're faced with. And you just cut it all down and you just said, no, war, <laughs> right? And that's, 
Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it's, I mean, I, I first got, you know, this kind of like idea just saying war, like that, that act of just saying, you know, war in all caps from the late, great Marvin Hagler, the marvelous oh, Marvin great. Hagler, you know, toughest boxer of all time. For those of you who aren't familiar, you know, he was one of the four kings of boxing in the 1980s, Roberto Duran, Sugar Ray Leonard, Thomas Hearns, and marvelous Marvin Hagler. And this man lived the way I, like he approached combat sports the way I strive to com- to approach combat sports. He would rent out an off-season motel in Cape Cod, sleep on the floor. He would do his road work in, in boots backwards. And he would scream on the beach war, right? Because he understands the stakes. Like it's not just, it's not like this show. Like you're getting in a ring and throwing bones at someone. Like that's serious. The only the only ones the only step up is is guns like actual war like you're out you're out in a in, in Baghdad swords swords would be a good click up from there yeah that's what we have bladed combat song and pot all that um, but the thing about that's I mean and it really made me upset when he died from something in 2021 um, he died from su- he died from suddenly yeah he died from suddenly. He died from suddenly <laughs> in, uh, in 2021, unfortunately. That's terrible. Yeah, and you know, I, I was hoping to meet him one day. I say, hey, you were one of my biggest mm-hmm. inspirations, not only as a, as a martial artist, but as a man. Um, that's where that inspiration came from. And what's funny too is there are I'm doing a lot of shout outs. This one shout outs to uh, Mark, George, John, and Jerry, who I work out with every morning. Um, mm-hmm. Church, you know, they they saw me say war, 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 and I think even they may slightly misunderstand what I'm saying because, you know, we're doing this high through most, you know, working on the morning. We talk absolute crap to each other sometimes. Nice half reps, man. Good job. Yeah. Nice. Mm. Um, and, uh, basically people misunderstand what is effective in combat. They think just outward barbarian, like screaming thing, like this raw aggression thing is, is, is effective in combat. And it's not. Right. Um, combat is ultimately decision making. It is effect it is more effective decision making than your opponent. Plain and simple. It 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 doesn't it, it's two, the day. two equally skilled men, yes. Or maybe not. Maybe not. Well, maybe. Okay, yeah, I can okay, okay, yeah. Like maybe, you know, I've there are guys who are physically gifted, natural knockout power. I've been blessed with God given knockout power. Does that mean I'm going to win every fight because I'm not a power? No, I may not have the opportunity. I may not make good enough decisions relative to my opponent to actually be able to use that knockout power effectively. Fair. He might pick me apart from a different angle. He might have longer arms than me. I can't close the distance. He's making Deontay better. Wilder versus uh, versus Tyson Fury, right? He's got yeah. Case in point, absolutely. Yeah. Deontay Wilder might be the most naturally gifted knockout artist in the history of combat sports. Because that guy's technique is horrendous, <laughs> and he walked. I mean, he 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 said it himself too. Every every martial arts pundit, you know, whether in the boxing world or the MMA world, like Faraz Sahabi or Max Kellerman, like they know that guy has no technique. But it almost doesn't matter because his he we walked into the first fight with Tyson Fury weighing two oh nine. That's not even really weighing as a heavyweight. That's still cruiserweight range. Hmm. And he managed to knock him down in the twelfth, which you know Tyson Fury summoned the gypsy spirit and got back up. Um, but the other two fights, he just got outworked. 
He got outmaneuvered. Tyson Fury made better decisions than him. He's not, uh, Tyson Fury isn't more physically gifted than Deontay Wilder. It's not even close. It's not even remotely close. So that is effective combat. How do you make effective decisions? Well, you're actually not that outwardly aggressive. You're not that outwardly emotional. You're clinical. You have a motor to you. You have a pace to you. You have an undying will to compete. But that's not all it takes. It's not about who wants it more. It's about who makes better decisions. It's about who's the most clinical. It's about who's the most non-emotional. Um, people have seen me write articles, you know, quote, quote unquote, assassin's mindset. Mm-hmm. The most effective combat mindset is the assassin's mindset. I need to win. It doesn't matter. I mean, you know, in certain cases, it matters how you win. But when it's life or death, the other person is coming for, let's say it's, a, it's an assailant with a knife. Someone's coming for you, your wife, your children. Are you going to think about, you know, whether or not he's going to be okay? No. Absolutely not. So the only thing that matters is winning and you don't fall in love with a way to win. You, you find, you find the effective decision that allows you to win and the people behind you, depending on you will be better for it. And that's really what I'm calling on everyone. When I say war, it's like, it's, it's, it's a step further in some ways than what Jacko says, but Jacko obviously has seen far more combat, you know, scenarios and i ever will well mm. god, god willing uh, hopefully it doesn't descend into pure madness and we're all yeah. want to defend the country or something like that right but you know he says he's, he's kind of cheekily you know does the snooze button press itself against your finger in the morning and he, he says that it's very uplifting for people what i haven't really heard him say lately and i hope he does with his reach is all these little decisions contribute to an overall greater war that more people than just you or your immediate community depend on in terms of effective decision making. Mm-hmm. That is, that is key. That is, that is vital. It's the most vital thing I could possibly think of in our era. And it's, it's most likely not going to look like guns in the street. It's not going to look like, Oh, I got my AR from Palmetto state armory. Probably not. Mm-hmm. It's going to be, are you going to opt in or out with your family? Are you going to opt in or out with these agendas? You're going to opt in or are you willing to starve? Are you willing to lose a job? Are you willing to move states over your bloodstream or over just being adjacent to people not being able to enter places for the sake of the sanctity of their bloodstream and your bloodstream? Are you willing to live like that? Are you willing to make those sacrifices? Are you willing to make those decisions? That's war, plain and simple. Amen. Amen. Right. And, and, and are you willing to start right now making the decisions that you know you need to make, however small, to begin moving in the direction of like, if you have to act, if you have to say no, if you have to stand up, if you have to move, are you, if you're, not currently, if you're not currently prepared to make significant, radical changes to your life to protect your bloodstream and your offspring, if you're not in a position to be able to do that, are you willing to wake up right now and start making those millions of small and large decisions to begin getting yourself and your family in a direction of being able to do that? Because you, you will have to. I, I don't think it's I, I don't think it's hard to imagine that some sort of uh, 
the vision that's coming in my mind, and I don't mean this in any kind of like prophetic vision, but so, you know, it's, it's like this wall of flame. This, you know, it's not going to be a flood, right? A flood will just come and washes everything away. A wall of flame will come and just consume everything that there is to be consumed, right? Just torch it all up. If you're not prepared, and I don't know what that looks like. Like I'm not prophesying anything, right? I'm not prophesying this kind of disaster, that kind of disaster, but there's a feeling of there's so much combustible material around, so much kindling in the social tension and the economic situation and men's weakness of lives that if anyone wants to just come along and light it all on fire, you know, they, it could, there's very little, and there's also very little societal constraints that would prevent that from happening. We used to have that. We used to have it. The social fabric probably used to be flame retardant. But now we don't have any social. I want to write that down. The social fabric used to be flame retardant, but now I don't think that's that's the case. And so you have all this kindling lying around. And so when the wall of flame comes, are you going to be able to move and respond to it intelligently, dispassionately, with a plan that you've already constructed ahead of time? And if you're not in the place to be able to do that, are you willing to go to war with yourself and with your habits and with your weakness to get yourself and a family to be able to do that? to fight the real war when it comes. And I would say that's a giant difference between men who are doing that or are anywhere in the process. Because I don't think it's I don't think it's appropriate to, for men to look at each other and say that dude's prepared and that dude's not and I'm only going to we we know guys like that. It's like I only look at the guys that have everything squared away and I ignore everything else, right? Mm-hmm. I think that there's a higher level of resolution. Like, is that guy trying? Is that guy, is he, is he putting effort in? Maybe he's not all the way there. Maybe he started yesterday. But is yeah. he working his ass off today? That has value. That has value. Because, you know, if you want to get eschatological about it, you know, obviously, I think it's clear that we're living under a lot, a lot of the pastors that I listen to they're like America. The reason why America is in the situation that we're in is that we're we're under judgment, and being you know being given up under God's judgment is you just he just he he takes away the constraints is my interpretation of what they say and let things just let things take their course. I will stop interceding on your behalf, and now you're under judgment, and I I give you up to your to your temptations, and that's what we see in America is everything's falling apart because everyone's been given up to their own temptations, and so. Um, Eschatologically, you know, if, if God hates sin and uh, punishes wrongdoers and evildoers, why why has that not happened yet? Why is that why is that not happening? Where is the where is the cleansing where is the cleansing flame coming yeah. from? Right, and that's and I think that's a big question. Well, the reason why that hasn't happened from an eschatological perspective is that. Um, God leaves the doors open as long as he possibly can. Absolutely. Right? And so and so there's a component of like hey, we all as as much and and you and I have run into this with some of the people we know, like there are so many guys that are cheerleading for the apocalypse. Bring it on. I got my guns. I'm all ready. Let's warlord in the wasteland. Let's get it on, right? There's a lot of guys that are oh, like cringe. that. It's super cringe. And and Meanwhile, there are those of us that are like, 
this gives us more time to repair and more time to bring as many people along as we can. And that is a fundamentally different view of reality. That is a fundamentally different meaning of what it means to be a man. More time, good. I can save more people. Versus like, can we get this on? I want to start killing people. Yeah. There are dudes that are like that. And, okay. and I guess, yeah. And, and, and actually a year later from some stuff that went down, I'm very grateful that the, the dudes that I had in my life that were like that are gone. Now that now I can finally actually put that to rest inside my heart. I'm glad that the men that I had in my life that were like that are gone. They're actually ultimately, they're ultimately a liability. Yeah. No, they're, they're legitimately a liability. I mean, so in, in, in AFF, right, I get guys coming from all kinds of backgrounds. Right. I, ha- I do have an ideal of what I want a man to be capable of. I want him to be squared away in a certain way. Some guys show up like that. Some yeah. guys, they are squared away and they're sharpening the saw. Like, hey, you know, I've been at this for a while. I heard you guys have a great program. I'm like, cool, let's get to work. Um, I have fighters. I have soldiers. I have border patrolmen. I have first responders. I got all kinds of guys in there. That was always about AFF. When you first told me about it, like serving with, with anti-fragile fitness needs, those communities, I was like, yes, 1,000% do that. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's, I, I love working with guys like that. I love the guys, and I, I love training the women in AFF too. They're on mm-hmm. top of it. Um, shout but, out, Sarah. Shout out, Sarah. Shout out, Stephanie. <laughs> um, basically, um, I, I told this to one of my guys uh, a year ago. I said, there are guys who are not there yet in a lot of different ways. Um, and, I think a lot of guys are surprised that I'm not just like going to them and roasting them. Like, right. Not like you fucking suck. Like <laughs> honestly, the way I was, so the, I told you about the bar I started in, there was a bunch of ex military guys and, and martial artists. And you know, if you prepared mint wrong as a bar back, who made the shitty fucking mint? <laughs> you, you fucking suck. Like hell's <laughs> kitchen, the bar. Yeah, no, li- literally. Like it was, it was craft cocktails, but had the same aggression as as a kitchen. There's a lot mm-hmm. of aggression in a lot of kitchens. Most people, if anyone who's been like a sous chef or some something like that, line cook, they know it's a pirate um, ship. All all kitchens are pirate ships, whether they're screaming or not. Absolutely, absolutely. And so I'm, they're surprised that I'm not like that. And as I take the view of Saint Paul. I can be all things for all people. You have to meet God meets people where we're at, where they're at. And you have to be like, you have to be Christ-like or you need to be God-like. It's a process of deification that's lifelong where you say, I'm going to meet you where you're at. Okay. Um, you've never deadlifted before. Okay? Obviously that's really right. starting to scratch, right? You're coming off an injury. Okay. Um, you're, you need to move up a weight class while grow, growing as a fighter. These are a bunch of different circumstances and I need to meet them where they're at. Yeah, I mean, I would love everyone to have a 600-pound deadlift and 400-pound bench press and four-minute mile. And honestly, a lot of guys are getting to progressions like that fast, putting hundreds of pounds on their lifts. They're going down in body fat and gaining muscle at the same time. Like They're doing all these things. But it's like, you're not supposed to like hate yourself until you get there. Because that actually throws away a lot of the fruits of getting there in the first place. You're missing a lot of the point. I've taken that process as being really important. Now, with the goals I have for fighting, I need to be a bit more harsh at myself. Well, yeah, it's different. Absolutely, because you either did it or you didn't. You either won or you didn't. You either got knocked out or you, you knocked the other guy out. Or you squeaked out the decision. 
Um, and I had a long case of injury that I had to eventually heal myself in order to, in order to move forward. You know, young neoliberate, he asked me, like, what happens when you get fully restored? I told him I'd probably be really unsatisfied. He's like, why? Yeah. And I'm like, why? I said, well, I lost all that time where I could have been growing. I had to come back. Like, this isn't an accomplishment in itself. Job's not done yet. Mm. Right? So it's, it's, you have to have this balance of understanding and being present in the process, but knowing like the process, like life's a journey. Mm, no, no. We have, we have ones or zeros for a lot of the things that we need to be doing. We need wins. We need wins across the board. In, in every tax bracket, in every part of this country, part of the West, part of the world. Um, so I, I keep that, like, I give them enough space where they can grow and focus on the process, but I try to hold them to a point where it's like, okay, ne- what's next? Mm-hmm. Because you're not, you don't, don't fall in love with your win. It's the disease of victory. You need to keep moving. Um, and, you know, to, to take something, to, to move towards something that could potentially be an initial black pill and understanding. But if you kind of get to the very end of it, you realize it's actually a good thing. Um, there's a book written by Nima Parvini that came out a year ago called The Populist Delusion, right? There's this I've heard of this. Yeah. I think, I think of you and I've discussed it briefly. Um, I said, you know, there's this idea that like, if enough people wake up and I just discussed it being the case and this part's true, where enough people wake up and we can rise together, we can make a difference. You know, enough people can opt out. That isn't enough. Right. That's important. But if you get into the world of elite theory, you're going to know that elites replace elites. The people don't replace elites. Okay. I can get down with that. And there's, and if, I mean, and usually the way this goes is a vanguard elite emerges, right? So they, you know, have enough successes, enough skill, enough resources where they can gain enough attention from the people to support them in their efforts. And it reaches that mass reaches around these elites and they displace the current elites. Usually it's not this great, like this amazing conflict, like the war of the roses or the English civil war or something like that. It's typically that the current elites lose the will to rule. Now look at Rome. That's what happened. Look at the state of the United States government. Mm. Look at the state of the current thought leaders. It doesn't even know. People are saying like, January 6th. No, no, it doesn't really need to be. No. Violent. This violence actually isn't going to do anything because we're, no. in weird, we're in a weird stalemate that's going to exist forever of two-way existing. But there's also the military industrial complex that's not going anywhere. So it's whoever is the thought leader, who is ever the new elites that have control of that, that realm of the world, whether it's business or whether it's a military industrial complex, whether it's government, those elites are going to dictate what are, what is going to be done with all those resources. But if you actually look at the state, you know, I was watching a speech of Tony Blair addressing Congress in 2003. It's, it's really just a meme. Like it's, it's the funniest meme I've ever seen of like, this is British guy, academic agent, actually who is Nima Parvini. And he's like, you know, Tony Blair is running everything. I'm telling you. And like, he calls him the dark Lord. I just get such a kick out of it. So, <laughs> um, but, you know, I was watched because, because of that meme I, on my YouTube suggestion was a, um, 
was a speech of Tony Blair addressing Congress in 2003, um, saying, I think it was basically, we're with you for Operation Iraqi Freedom. But you just looked at like the spirit of Congress, like the caliber of people, like the physiognomy of everyone in Congress, like that was still a capable, like willing to rule government. In 2003? Right? 2003, yeah. This is the you know, first term of Bush still. Yeah, first term of Bush before his right. reelection. Um, like they, they weren't acting in our interests, but they were still capable. You know, you look at. Okay, I can get down with that. And pretty much, you know, the United States government has been capable for the most part. And that's really around that time when it started to taper off. Um, and they're, they're capable of destruction of the well-being of people, but still capable. Now, <laughs> now the kind of destruction that's being made, you look at, I mean, I saw Joe Biden's State of the Union. You just hear it and you look around. It's like, these are the people running America right now. They're, they're not, but. No. And then you look around the world too. It's like, really? Like, these are the people in control. They just strike me as people who are less and less willing to rule. So why am I saying all this? There will eventually emerge people who are capable. This is very much Thomas Carlyle 101, great man theory, right? It's not necessarily a cesarean thing, right? It's not necessarily we're waiting for the next Napoleon, right? No, not really. That's this whole great man theory. What will emerge is a bunch of people who have been influenced, maybe by the people, maybe by the tide shifting of the crowd, as Gustav Le Bon would call it. See these people opting out of all these things that were seen as gospel. And that even starts to raise an eyebrow for someone who could potentially be a new elite, maybe a captain of industry, maybe, um, maybe a thought leader, maybe a potential politician. Maybe uh, someone who could own a bunch of farms and, and switch them from a farming technique that strips the soil and to regenerative farming. I don't know. But the only way these people are going to be removed is, is we have a vanguard elite. Um, and that is going to emerge in a very particular way. It needs to be inherently decentralized as a start. Because if you notice, if anything emerges that's too powerful, counter to the current regime's interests, you just get smited. You know, it's just like or subverted from within. Exactly. I mean, we were talking about Jordan Peterson. That's not the same guy anymore. I agree. I'm not. Gonna, I, I'm not going to sit here and pretend that he's irrelevant. You know, he did nothing. No, he did a lot. He did a ton. Yeah, but he is not the same guy. Yeah. Um, so you need to have a bunch of different efforts. You know, we need lawyers. We need, and I'm, I'm really just echoing Nima Parvini's point about this. When he consolidated all the work of the elite theorists and said, this delusion of populism needs to end because we need to realize that, you know, we need elites on our side and we need them backed by the people. The American Revolution was even the case of this. The American Revolution doesn't happen without the funding of John Adams. It doesn't happen without the leadership of George Washington. It also doesn't happen without the likes of Thomas Paine. Now, Thomas Paine, a lot of people view him as this Lockean extremist of faith, right? And if you come from a liturgical form of worship, you're not going to like Locke or Thomas Paine or any of that. Um, but he wrote Common Sense, which got the, 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 the psyches of the people, the colonists, in, this, in the early days of this nation to be on the side of the revolution. That's an elite thought leader. You had an elite military leader in Washington. You had an elite financier. Um, okay. And so... That eventually needs to happen here. And so for those of you listening, saying, that's probably not me, 
I'm probably not that guy. That's okay. Like that's mm-hmm. not the big, it's, it's, it's not over. It's not. Um, there are things that you can do in your immediate given circumstances that you would be shocked how it could influence someone. It could trickle to someone who has the resources. So as long as we as a people, we stay on the task at hand, we fight the war that's right in front of us, those people will eventually emerge because they know that there's a demand out there. I agree. That's probably the best articulation of elite theory that I've heard because um, it it sounds about right that uh, not every man is called to uh, what we'll we'll call historic greatness. But I think, um, and this is, this is, this is also where the flaws of like the whole like alpha mindset kind of breaks down. It's like, first of all, no one is alpha in every circumstance. Right. Right. You're not, you're like, and most men, don't act aren't actually called to any form of leadership for real some men literally just want to belong it is sufficient to them to belong and they're happy doing it and and the language that we use sort of bludgeons them into trying to be more than they actually feel called to do or they're made to feel not good enough mm-hmm. it's like it's sufficient that you lead a home if you you have to you're called to lead your home god commands you to lead your home he doesn't command you to lead anything anything else you know it wasn't it wasn't like David strides onto the battlefield to fight Goliath and God like points it all. Look at all you weak betas, you know, like behind him, right? <laughs> right? Yeah. Look at all these. So- right. So it's like, it's understood that like not every man is called to that position. And I thank you. Thank you for saying that because that, that distinction gets lost, you know, in trying to, to, um, to buff up the male ego and let them know, let them feel like they're masters of the universe. It's like, bro, you don't have to be a master of the universe. You have to be master of your home, right? You have to be master of your body, master of the things that you've been charged with, but you don't necessarily have to be George Washington in order to be to have value as a man. Yeah. And that distinction absolutely gets lost. And at the same time, for men that are called to be George Washington, Madison, Thomas Paine, I mean, pick, right? Mm-hmm. It is your responsibility to step into that, as scary as it is. And maybe for a moment, actually, maybe we can talk about um, imposter syndrome because that's a that I've been hearing that kicked around a lot lately. That phrase, like a lot of men saying that they have. A, I mean, it's a big thing on the internet. Men and women talking about having imposter syndrome, and I'm. I, I guess it. It sounds like a psychologization of something that's normal. Like how can we how can we pathologize this? Right, like, oh, I have I have imposter syndrome. I need to get this medicine for the syndrome I have. Maybe it's not necessarily a chemical, but like, buy this book or whatever. It's like, but people have been doing basically the same things for thousands of years with different levels of technology. What did they call like the George Washington feel imposter syndrome? The, the founding fathers, like, we don't know what we're doing founding a country. We all have imposter syndrome. Like, I don't know. Like, did they they didn't say that about <laughs> themselves? But I think that there are a lot of men who are feel listening to this, who feel called to great things, but they have imposter syndrome or they have what they've learned to describe to themselves as imposter syndrome. What is that? Because it holds a lot of really good men back. I know some in my life that we've actually talked about it, right? It's like, yeah. you know, I'll encourage them towards some, some amazing potential that's right in front of them. And like, bro, you're firing up my imposter syndrome. I'm like, what? <laughs> like, what does that mean? My imposter syndrome is flaring up right now. Please give me a moment. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, 
I, I think I've suffered from that a lot, honestly. Um, you know, I, there's a there's a podcast called Orthodox Wisdom. You know, it's a typical Orthodox podcast. And one of the most recent ones, uh, you know, talking about Revelation, uh, cowardly will the cowardly will uh, die in the lake of fire. This is this is a if you're called John to, didn't mince words really. Yeah, not really. Um, and some of you are called to a certain very scary set of circumstances. Some of you are actually literally called to greatness. And you can't pretend to be the guy who just wants to belong. That's the flip side of things. There are guys who mm-hmm. just want to belong who are like, you know, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm just going to say it. Like people like Solbra who are like, oh. you, are, <laughs> you are the, it is going to be like, oh, he's just giving me bad vibes. Like, no, you're just, you're spouting nonsense. Like this whole, I am the master of my universe. I am God type thing, right? I eat orange peels. They're full of vitamin C. Like, Anyway, he did that. He actually did that. You see, I and my you guys know my stance is like I forget he exists until you mention him. But this is this is reminiscent of <laughs> why well, don't mention him. <laughs> this is reminiscent of like what you were saying earlier, saying you don't need to be this master of the universe, and that, that's that's the false dichotomy I see. They're either like, you know, just a guy, I'm nobody. Um, or I, I am God. Like they really do believe that in some sense oh, of the word. Yeah. So that's a really nasty false dichotomy that doesn't really get spoken about enough. Um, but at the same time, right, so there are some men who really are called to leadership. Like I'm called to leadership and I don't want to be. Right? Plain and simple. And there are yeah, they're kind of introverted. Yeah. Very. War. It's kind of the, exactly what an introvert would say. Very. I'm very introverted. Like <laughs> I know, I know, I know. The amount of... Um, I was telling a uh, shout out Omar, Omar Hendon. Uh, <laughs> all our bros, all our bros getting the shout outs, of course. This one. Yeah. Um, like, I would take the service while one of my last jobs in the marina, by the way. And, you know, I was bitched about the marina and actually wound up working there. I'd take the service while so I could read poetry while making drinks and not have to speak to anybody. I'm like, listen, I don't want to talk to anybody, okay? Like, I am capable of making drinks while reading poetry. I get that you're not. That doesn't mean I can't do it. <laughs> so, um, hold on, hold on. I need to. I need to put the pieces together. Uh, Arthur, blood and rain, anti fragile fitness. You know, uh, fighter slash murderer, ring murderer, reading poetry, making craft cocktails, listening to poetry, making craft cocktails in the marina of San Francisco. Okay, that sounds like a sitcom to me. It was hilarious. Like, yeah. Hi, can I have a? Can you have a what? Cosmo, can I, can I have an espresso martini? Sure. Wait, wait. Can, can I? Can I? Yes. Can, can I have four of them? Yes. I, I, can please finish speaking so I can make them and go back to reading Odysseus Dallas, please. Like it was not very nice towards the end there. I was okay. Yeah, something there had to be. There had to be a catch somewhere in there. I was. Yeah, I was truly the bitter bartender towards the end. Like, <laughs> it's like, the marina. There, I mean, you have to be that. He's like, don't, don't. Dude, ask me. I'll make the drinks. Just, I don't want to talk to you. <laughs> so yeah, I'm pretty introverted in a lot of ways. You know, which I'm low in trait agreeableness. <laughs> I, I'm very introverted in a lot of ways, which a lot of people don't think because I have a certain level of speech and, and a certain capacity of charisma. But I'm like, I keep to myself quite a bit. John Madden was actually the same way. He's a big loner, but you wouldn't guess it because really. Yeah, he's screaming like wham block and writing on the Telecaster, you know, and doing Saturday Night Live and beer commercials, right? 
So I'm, I'm called to something that makes me really uncomfortable in that regard. That's not a comfort zone for me because I just don't like it. Doesn't mean I'm not capable. And there are some people who are, who are called to leadership and who are called to maybe greatness who are trying to tell themselves, oh, I just want to be the guy that belongs. Like you're, you're wasting God-given talent. You're wasting purpose. Yeah. You, know, you are depriving the world of what it is that you were supposed to be doing. Um, I had a bit of imposter syndrome with fighting for the longest time um, because I had a bunch of things happen in my life that prevented me from doing it. And it was really frustrating. And you and I had a conversation about this about six months ago. It's just like, it seems no matter what I do, you know, blank happens. And I told you, well, you know, to be honest, I had to leave England when I had a good gym situation. Hmm. Then I got injured. And then when I stopped being injured, I had a, a good situation in California. And then COVID happened. And then I got injured again. And I came back. And I got to a point where I tried out for a fight team. Uh, 30, 30 to 40 people tried out. I was the only one who made it. Um, I was the only one who made it unanimously to get on this fight team. Hmm. And this was after sleep deprivation, poverty, uh, malnourishment, injury, a broken engagement. Hmm. And in these sleep deprived shifts, I'm shadow boxing next to the chase center where the Warriors play. Thinking to myself, yeah, still going to come back. I just somehow inherently knew, like, I'm going to come back. I later found out that was a way that was God meeting me where I was at because that's how I eventually came back to God. That was the lifeline. And I remember locking myself in the bathroom after the fight test and I like broke down crying because I actually thought to myself, like, how can I rise if I don't growl? And I, I knew I had it, but circumstances surrounded me saying like, well, it doesn't seem like you do. Mm-hmm. And before I left San Francisco, I had the, for the first time in my life, you know, a mentor outside of my father who taught me more about myself that I, I didn't know was there. Mm-hmm. and. Him, him, and him and I had an understanding. And, you know, he's, he's a guy who was burned in the past. You know, we're both kind of introverted. We're both, like, we both have, you know, we both served as bouncers and told things to various women. Like, he's literally said to one woman who was trying to chat him up, I have no dick. Says, what? what? <laughs> one woman's trying to chat him up and he says, I have no dick. I don't have anything you want. Get out of here. Like, the, same, that. the same level of outlandish Sort of like, yeah, piss off. I don't want to talk to you. I have no dick. <laughs> <laughs> That'll work. Yeah. And the same approach to combat, the same temperament. Like, he understood me a lot more than I initially thought he did. And I remember before I had to leave San Francisco, and I did not want to leave. I had to leave due to given circumstances forcing me out due to... As we discussed. A certain thing. A certain thing. But I just remember a passage. The, the threat of suddenly. <laughs> crazy uh, don't get too excited now it might be fatal um yes. <laughs> oh, my heart <laughs> he said to me after a pad session i remember him looking at me in a certain way he stopped and he had managed a pretty prestigious fight team before this too and he says you have an incredibly high ceiling mm. you can take this as far as you as far as you want, to the highest level. You know, there are plenty of guys who are big and strong. You're big, you're strong. You're fast, you have a gas tank, you have a high IQ, you're light on your feet. Like, there are very few guys who come in to this with all those attributes. Mm-hmm. And um, 
it was liberating, honestly. Mm. And so I, I guess I needed I needed someone to tell me that about myself. Um, and that's that's pretty much all I needed at that point. And um, yeah, I mean, someone, and, and that's the thing. Someone somewhere is going to tell someone something about themselves. That you know, maybe this we're talking about this vanguard elite. Someone somewhere is the dad of the next vanguard elite, next liberator of society. You know, and that's that's parallel to a bunch of other different pursuits that we need. We need the next great writer. We need the next great general. We need the next great political leader. So that's that's the, those are the stakes. Those are the stakes at hand. Amen. It's beautiful. Really, I mean, a lot of men they need to hear something like that from their father. First of all, that would be the first. But even men who hear it from their fathers, that to, to be validated um, by a man we admire and respect, who is expert in a field that we're interested in, to have them look at us and and bless us with essentially it's the knowledge that like these things that you think about yourself, they're true. It's not just in your head. Right? Like he didn't tell you anything about yourself that you didn't already know. But he just let you know, at least I don't think he did, but he just let you know that these things that you think about yourself, and maybe he didn't even intend to do that, but um, he still validated for you that these things that you thought were real about yourself are in fact real. Like you are the man who you think you are. Yeah. And, and most men never get that from their father they, and they don't get it from a mentor, um, but we need it. And that's, that's the thing I think is so important about mentorship and initiation is that most men never, they never get blessed by their father. They never get blessed by their community of, of men around them. They never get blessed by their pastor. They never get blessed by, you know, a mentor. They we're isolated. We're atomized. We don't know who we are. We don't know what we're supposed to be doing. We're culturally conditioned and manipulated into these very small or very small aspects of who we could be. And when we try and poke our head out of our shell to say, am I this thing? The fir- usually the first person who comes around the corner is someone who doesn't have our best interests at heart who says, no, you're not. Go back in your shell, right? But there are some men that um, fight to actually be seen. And, and, and earn that blessing because I think it is earned in a way. Like, because if, if you fight to come out of the shell, it's like, am I this? And then someone comes in and says, yes, you are that. Like, well, are you ready to really receive the glory of that blessing versus the work that you had, been, you had put into become that man and be blessed in that way? Maybe there's a component of that as well. Absolutely. I mean, I, I think too, you know, even men with strong fathers, they need other mentors outside their father. Like, yeah, it, it, that's actually vital. It can't just be your father because my dad taught me, gosh, he taught me so much about myself. He taught me, he, he, you know, staying to principle despite, you know, everything crashing around. Um, to, and I told you the last time I recorded, but to this day, I have not Still, two years later, I have not met anyone analytically, you know, in terms of pure processing power, more intelligent than my father. Again, I know they're out there, but I haven't met one yet. Um, and, you know, he, you know, he saw me, you know, shadow box the first time when I was like 20. 
And he's just like, that is, that's some crazy speed. It's like fast. And I'm like, yeah, it's my dad saying that, you know, I feel like my dad, I can, sure. <laughs> you know, sure dad, you know, but um, to have someone who actually knows what they're talking about and the thing, like, that's why, you know, guys need the high school football coach. Right. That's a, that's a big rite of passage in this country. Um, guys need, you know, whatever it is, right. It could be a, it could be a chess master, right. It could be something like that. That's vital. Um, it's, it's more, you need to eventually, you know, later on for those of you who are fathers, um, you need to be, you need to grow more than just being a father. You need to be a patriarch in the community mm-hmm. because you're going to be able to affect someone else's kids in a way that their father, who could be super present, a great father, never could. And that's, that's honestly like, and you and I had this conversation recently. It's something I've had kind of in the back of my mind that we're, there's some people who are falling into this notion that fatherhood is like the pinnacle of masculinity. Like when you're falling mm. on it and then they're like out of shape and you know, their, their life's work that is calling to them. Like we mentioned before, they're just neglecting. It's like, I'm a father now. It's like the most masculine thing you do. No, that's just expected of you. Mm. Like, are you going to be a monk or are you going to be a householder? Mm. Which is yeah. it? So you're holding your house. Cool. You did the duty that you're supposed to do. That's expected of you since you're not at a monastery. Right. And if we look at biblical, you know, relationships, the wife is there to assist the man in his mission, not just to raise the children. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's, it's important that, you know, the father's listening to, if, you know, I'm, I'm not really trying to knock you, but basically saying you can't be caught slipping because there's more of an impact that you can be making, but you're kind of phoning it in. You're saying, hey, I raised my kids, um, paid for everything, and now I'm just going to sit here and, I don't know, watch sports? I don't know. <laughs> I, don't know people, <laughs> I don't know what people do. Or, and there's a lot more you can be developing about yourself, even in later years there's a lot of people who show you studies like the brain finishes like for a man the, the patterns settle at 29 right somewhere in between the 29th and 30th year mm, and maybe maybe yeah that's why that's what i think like maybe because i see my father who is at the top of his game his career as a as you know in the realm of computer science as like an architect as a data analyst like he does everything and for me who's some, someone who doesn't really know the field all that well I've seen like the, the improvement in his expertise, the improvement of his awareness um, since, was about the, the, since the time I was in high school, really. Um, so that's a cop-out. It's, just, it's, it's such a sorry, sorry cop-out. Mm-hmm. Like, how, how are you going to inspire your children? How are you going to inspire a higher example for your daughter to look for in a husband? How are you going to inspire an example for your son if you were just phoning it and saying, I provided all these basic things that I'm supposed to be doing as a father? Fatherhood in itself is not enough. Mm-hmm. Simple as. No, I, I, uh, I'm, I'm, glad you, I'm glad you pointed that out because I, I, it's very true that um, only in a, in a society is as broken as ours where so many men are, are, are checking out of marriage and fatherhood entirely could fatherhood even be considered something that's like aspirational? Mm-hmm. Like, Oh, I'm a father. It's like, wow. Like that's how bad it is, huh? For all of us. Like that's, that's a, that's a thing. And I, and I think also uh, I, I did notice it seems to have died down a little bit now, but it was also happening last year, 2022 
there was a bit of like f- uh, family idolatry, like making the family into an idol, mm-hmm. right? There was yeah. there's a lot of that, right? And 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 that's very sobering, um, and I think very necessary for men to hear. Like, congratulations, you're a father. That's 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 the that's the starting point. Now, again, I'm saying this, and I'm I'm not a father, right? And for me, for me, there is a component of it being aspirational, mm-hmm. um, because dating is, and we don't have to get into this, but dating is very difficult right now, yeah. In, in, in part because, like, um, and, and for the same reason, I think it's difficult to make friends right now, because you can be you can meet someone in your real life, a man, hang out with him, and then like you know somewhere in he's like, yeah, I got my second booster, and then it's like, okay, that. Right. I mean that like, and you don't, you don't even want to bring it up. I don't even want to bring it up, you know, cause you find out that's like, Oh, okay. You, uh, unless they phrase it like I got that and I really regret it. That's one thing, but it's like, yeah, you know, uh, uh, yeah, you know, I'm, I, I like kind of, I kind of like what, what Biden's talking about. You know, I kind of like some of the things that AOC have said or whatever, you know, what and everything else was, I mean, no one actually says that, but you know what I mean? Like where it's like, okay, I, the, I can see already up ahead that this friendship is not really going to go anywhere. Yeah. Right. And, and, and for some of this, and, and because the people that we live in, with in our everyday environment, they, we could be completely able to have uh, friendly relationships with them. But when you really find out like who's going to be there when the wall of fire comes and you find out like this person's not going to be that, like you've wasted all this time and energy relating with someone who you just know is not going to be there. Dating suffers from this. That's, that's the problem with making men, making male friends in person is, you know, you can't really start out the conversation. So it's like, so how do you feel about the vaccine mandates? You can't start out the conversation because it's like, well, I think they were probably a good idea. Like, well, okay, let's just end this right now. Nice to meet you. I'm <laughs> right? going to go to the bathroom. Um. <laughs> <laughs> and not come back. Yeah. Right. And dating is kind of the same because, it's, because you run in the same situation. And meanwhile, there are women all over the country, but it's like then you have to deal with a long distance relationship for a while. Right, so it's it's tough. So for that reason, many men are stuck in this position where it's like fatherhood is aspirational. Now, setting that aside, because you're you're navigating the the social and I guess you might say regional dynamics of America right now. But setting that aside, I think you you I do identify something very important where it's like, congratulations, I have sired offspring. It's like you just started the gig, buddy. There's a lot more you got to do because. You at least want to do you want to pass on a legacy to them? And 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 this touches us on something that I, I was thinking earlier. You know, I was raised in a very particular way. I was raised to be a very uh malleable cog in a hierarchical machine, whether doctor, lawyer, business person, it didn't really matter, you know. The IQ like, shredder. Yeah. Sorry? The IQ shredder, basically. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's like, well, you know, uh, all these institutions exist, and I, you know, I've, as I've said before, I grew up in a Jewish family, and and Jewish families have exactly one priority for their children that is uh, financial, uh, financial and economic success at all costs. It does mm-hmm. not matter what we have to saw off you, metaphorically speaking, or beat out of you. You will be successful. Period. You don't know outdoors? No, that's not a thing. Sports? No, that's not a thing. School? School is a thing. School, college, those are things. Graduate school, you know, diploma, economic success, those are the things, period, end of discussion. Mm-hmm. So that's how I was raised. And I did very good at that, except I'm just a not enormous pain in the ass and I have my own ideas. So, um, so I, I think um, 
I think that there's a lot that happens in response to that, where you get men that have so many aspects of themselves that have been sawed off and they don't recognize that there's this legacy, there's this identity. There's so, there's so much more to you that's required if you want to not fit as a cog neatly into the machine. Mm-hmm. And, and, and that's what I think where the fatherhood conversation kind of comes in. It's like, I did the thing, you know, I got the job, the middle management job. I've got the minivan and the 2.5 kids <laughs> done. Shit. Right. <laughs> yeah. And I think a lot of men, not just, not, you know, that's the end of their aspirations because that's the only thing they've ever been taught to aspire to. That's the sort of thing that I was only ever taught to aspire to. Again, I'm a, I'm a giant pain in the ass and I have my own ideas and I, I'm a pain in the ass to myself because I followed my own ideas, which is how I found my way into the, literally into the conversation we're having right now. Of course, mm-hmm. there were many steps into him. But when we talk about things like war and going to war against yourself and walls of flame and building businesses and legacy and all these things, it's all wrapped up together into what are your expectations for your life as a man? What are they? Are you prepared to fight for them? Are you prepared to fight, for, fight against yourself for them? If the end of your aspirations as a man is siring children, you're like 30% the way down the road of what a man is capable of. Absolutely. Right? Yeah. And, and I, I don't think, I don't know that, I, there, are, there are men for whom that message lands. I've mentored many of them for whom that message lands. They wake up to it. And then there are some men, I think that thought, maybe this is the imposter syndrome, that thought terrifies them that there's so much more. What is it they say? The Navy SEALs say, when you say you're out of gas, you're only 40% of the way there, yeah. something like that. Yeah. And maybe, maybe like, to, you know, to take the long way around, like a, a man who just says, well, I've got kids, I've made it. It's like, no, you're just 40% of the way there, buddy. Yeah, that's, and you know, what you said about making an idol, like there's kind of, um, there's, there's a rightful concern of like gatekeeping and receipts. Um, yes. You know, that's, uh, I, I think there's, it's valid for the most part, but it's almost like the, the meme of like post physique, post family, bro. Oh, yeah. Um, first of all, I'm going to harp on this now. Um, Go. So I, I, I put out a tweet last year that says there's going to be a, gr- a group of people in hell that listen to the Jack Tan guy. And so I don't understand. Why am I here? I listen to the Jack Tan guy. <laughs> and basically, um, yeah, I was kind of ripping on you should listen to all these people because they're jacked and have a tan. And someone said, my brother in Christ, you were jacked and tan. I'm like, yeah, that's why I'm saying this because mm-hmm. I, I'm going to rip on this because I have those things. And people are going to be like, Oh, well, you're just saying that because you're not jacked and tan. You're just jealous. I'm like, no, this is retarded. Stop. Like that is not going to forge a good opinion on something that you should listen to just because they are jacked and tan. Right. Um, people say like, you know, check it as physiognomy. Well, Certain people, Larry Fink, George Soros, Tony Blair, you know, these people aren't benching. Some of them haven't lifted a weight a day in their life. <laughs> they're, they're making decisions about your life in your sleep. Do you think it matters that they didn't post physique? Do you think it matters yeah. that they post family? Stupid. Very stupid. And in, in, the, in what you said about, about families and, and, and relationships making us an idol, um, People, people will check all those boxes just to feel valid 
before a point when they really should have checked those boxes, right? There are some people in AFF who are like, I'm not married yet. What do I do? I'm like, bro, you're 20. I know. I, I, I deal with that a lot. It's like, you relax. And I get some people who are in their 30s, like, I'm still not married, but I haven't met, I haven't met like a wife yet. And I was just like, okay, okay. Like, we're not, we're no longer in the 50s where you can meet a woman at a bar. And that's actually, that's, like, that's like a safe way. Like, oh, this woman probably, like, you could marry her. Things would be okay. She has no damage from the past that's going to, you know, wreck the marriage. That's not the case now. Not the case. Oh, yeah, no. By any means. And I mean, it was at a point where I didn't, I didn't meet anyone. I mean, I was engaged to a, a person, but that was really part of a self-destructive trap that you and I have talked about. In the past. I would, I would agree with that. <laughs> but I mean, you, you, you got saved. Praise God. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, we had that joke. It doesn't really matter what her name is. I forgot. I mean, um, I really have actually forgotten her name. <laughs> <laughs> but at, at that point, you know, what is one is like? I see you as marriage material. What does that mean? Well, it doesn't mean like just, oh, she's hot, bro. Um, no, it means I would spend my life with you. I want you there assisting me in my mission by God. And I want to have children with you. Mm-hmm. I said to the guys yesterday at AFF, guys, if you don't want a miniature version of your girlfriend, don't marry her. You mean like, that's just like a child? Like, like a if child. you wouldn't be. Okay. You okay. I, I want, Sometimes she could be more portable. <laughs> you know, it really would save time with some certain TSA checks. Over, overhead carry-on luggage. There you go. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, if, if you don't want like a, a little baby version of your girlfriend, don't marry her. So That's marriage means, you know, I, I can spend my life with you. I want you to support me in my mission. I want to pour all my resources and my time into you as well, vice versa. I want to honor you as you submit to me. And I want to have children with you. There are instances where you won't meet someone like that for years. I know people who are devout Orthodox Christians have not met that person. They're in their 30s. Mm-hmm. That's, that's okay. I mean, God has a different plan for you, right? Are you staying the path now? Are you present in your mission now? Are you present in your prayers now? Are you present, present in your duties now? Right. The, the wife will emerge. Mm-hmm. So this whole like hanging over your head, well, I have a family and you don't. So why would I listen to you? And like this whole banter, Twitter sphere and all that's stupid. It's very, very stupid. Mm-hmm. Ideal. Like the ideal is you should marry young. That is the ideal, right? You get, you're younger, you have more energy, you get kids out of the way, but that's not the case for everybody. And vice versa, I have guys. Saying, rarely the case nowadays. Are you kidding? Very rarely. People don't want to be telling. Well, the reason there's a reason for that is because people don't want to be telling girls that they shouldn't be going to college. Is what it is. I mean, there's a lot of factors to that. There's that. There's the fact that it's a lot harder for men at a young age to have the resources to have the skill set to provide for a wife and kids that early. I, I said that, and what someone said is actually that if you're thinking they they their response was that if you're thinking in terms of college and stuff like that, then yes. But if you're thinking in terms of trades, a young man at the age of 21, 22 can absolutely earn enough if he's good at a trade to support a family. Yeah. I mean, if he, if he goes to trade school as an electrician pretty fast, yeah, that, that, that actually, yeah. true. Uh, or, I mean, or, or also like, that doesn't mean that she doesn't work. Like you're not starting to pop out kids right away, but you know, it wasn't that men at, at age 20 or 21, when they were getting married, were all that successful that, but they built success really fast because now they were married. But I think I think the real cultural stigma against saying 
people should get married young is that what's unspoken is that like, well, well, you're, you're saying that girls should get made, married young. Like girls have to go to college. Like they, they have to let them do that first. So they can't get married young. They have to get married old because you can't tell women not to do things. Right. That's the, that, that I think is what's whispered behind the scenes. I think that's the thing that really prevents, because I think a man, a young man of the age of 20 or 22 could absolutely work very hard and provide for a wife. And that if she were ride or die with him, right, they would make that happen because that's what used yeah. to happen. Absolutely. But now why is, why is that not the case now? That's my, that's my, you know, cult, like cultural critique, I guess, my hypothesis. Yeah. They give you like a false set of options. Well, you could be doing this, 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 and this instead. But, yeah. But plain and simple, you, you just might not meet that woman. And that's, that's fine. Um, yeah. And women might, might, might not meet that man, too, either. And it's like, hey, let's say you're holding out, you're, you're living according to faith, and you just haven't met that man yet. He hasn't arrived. All right, stay put, sit tight, um, stay patient. Yeah. And that's, um, th- that, puts the, that cuts the idolatry out of it, right? Um, yeah. There'd be guys with extensive military careers. They get out, and next day they meet, you know, that woman like wow okay this is fortuitous great Mm -hmm. um there are some guys who would build with that woman from a young age you know they don't have much to them but they know what they want to do they're setting out like hey i'm going to be a priest right probably not a lot of money being a priest you still want to marry me okay Mm -hmm. um that's that's something i think needs to be stressed a bit more because you know, in, in, in the flip side, like I said, the guys who are younger is like, should I be getting married now? Like, I want to make sure I'm not missing. And like, what would you be missing out on? Mm-hmm. You can still, you can still do all those things. Are you trying to be like a Peace Corps guy in the middle of Tanzania? Yeah, maybe you're missing out on that, but it doesn't sound like you are. Um, so that's another, just, we're just ripping through critiques of the men's space. I think it's high time. No, I, I think it's really important because I think it deserves to be criticized. Because if you can't criticize it, it's a, it's a religion. In fact, if you can't criticize it, it's a cult. You know, a cult is, my definition of cult, and this is my personal definition, is any, is any organization that you get punished for leaving, right? If you leave, am I, am I here, do I, am I free to go? No, cult. Even if, you leave, even if you're in a bowling league and you quit the bowling league to do whatever and you get a call from the bowling league president, like, why did you quit the bowling league? I don't know of any specific instance where that happens, but that, that's cult-like behavior. Yep. I'm allowed to freely associate, right? And that also means that I'm allowed to leave and I'm allowed to critique it from the outside. But the way the men's space is currently constructed is no one can handle any criticism. And also, there's no position to stand from within to criticize it except for Christianity. That seems yeah. to be a feature. And so that's starting to happen more and more. And as I'm discovering on Twitter, a lot of guys don't really like it and I don't really care. Um, and I think, and I think a big thing that, that it does fall into is, um, is idolatry of things that it can measure with its eyes. Mm-hmm. What's your body fat percentage? What's your big lift? How big is your house? What's your income? How many kids you got? Right. And that, and, and the value of a man is measured in terms of that a man is valued based on what he can produce. Shut up. Shut up. Like, are you kidding me? Like there's an extent to which that's true, mm-hmm. obviously. Right. But there's a point at which you have to understand that this human being in front of you does have does have innate worth as well. It's not either or, it's not either or, it's both. And if you can't perceive a man's value or his potential value and you only can you only can measure what he's produced, then you're going to look at a 20-year-old kid full of energy and potential and be like, "Yeah, but then there's this 45-year-old guy over there that's got it all figured out." 
I care about that. It's like, no, you have to invest in human beings. Yeah. You have to help grow them. Like that's what I thought fathers are supposed to do. We're living in a father-hungry culture. That's what Doug Wilson says, father-hunger. What, what is the energy of a father? Cultivation, growth, support, belief. Help grow these men up because they're orphans. Mo whether they have fathers or not, they're orphans. Help grow men. Don't throw them out because they're not finished like you, not you, you, but like you imagine that you are. And that's the men's space right now because it lacks spiritual insight. It lacks it totally. And, and it's, it's been heartbreaking to see it fight for its own blindness, right? And, and so I think the conversation that you and I have been having for what you do in AFF and for what I do with my Renaissance of Men guys, like it's very high touch. There's a lot of investment in men, telling them about their potential, showing them, blessing them, growing them. The word is generative. And to be generative as a man means to be generous as a man, means to give a, a piece of yourself to help a man grow because it grows back. I can give away pieces of myself to men who deserve it all day. I get them back. They grow right back. And that helps grow men. And the men's, and, and I think that's fundamentally to me, what I like to say is this is not a market. This is a ministry. It's not a market. The masculinity is not a market. It's a ministry. Mm -hmm. And, and, and that's how, that's how I approach it. And it bears fruit and it's rewarding. And it's fundamentally a spiritual or religious effort, like a shepherd, like a priest or a pastor to do this for men. And I think that's what we're all doing. And that fits with the war aspect as well. Maybe. Arthur's army, Will's army, whoever, everyone's got their armies, right, that we're building. And ultimately, it's all for the same cause. But I think all these things, are, I think they fit together very, very deeply. But the men's movement hasn't thought about that. It thinks in terms of cults of personality and funnels, right? Like, yeah. buy my gumroad and all that stuff. It's like, that's got to change because a gumroad isn't going to fight the spiritual war. Yeah, the sun's good for you, buy my gumroad. <laughs> no way. At, at uh, least Ajax had the. At least Ajax, Alexander Cortez had the decency to satirize that and made a made a drink more water gumroad course and sold it for like five hundred dollars. How to drink? How to drink more water? <laughs> no, uh, tilt the elbow a little bit more, like that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. That is the exactly. angle on which you drink water. Okay, yeah, five hundred bucks. Um, yeah. Andrew Huberman's new videos about that. <laughs> yeah, the, the, the satire that comes from this neck of the woods is actually pretty hilarious. Uh, yeah. There's a certain king of it, uh, Storms and Soirees. No, uh, it's a Chattisian. <laughs> Love that guy. Yeah. <laughs> um, but um, yeah, it's, I think moving forward, I, I actually had this talk with Tanner Guzzi. Um, I haven't released that podcast. We record in December and I still haven't released the podcast. Uh, but, really? Yeah. And the reason for that is like, I got caught in the middle of series, right? So I had a series on, um, the assessing, like the assessing the West, right? So that that was the Saxon Cross, um, Zenobial, Letters from the Ruins, and then uh, the four of us did a, a panel together to sort of wrap that up. Hmm. Um, and then the tail end of that was uh, the last one was totally on Anacreon, because so, he's sort of adjacent to that. Um, it was totally on Anacreon and a really great podcast. I think a lot of people should listen to uh, the Jay Burden show. Um, hmm. He's kind of like the interview guy of like a lot of a lot of people who are really cutting edge and thinking, let's just say that. Um, so that sort of like assessment of the West uh, series lasted a bit. And then I went into, you know, Lent. And for me, Lent is just be centered around, you know, the faith. So I had people like uh, Luthemplar and I had people like um, Charismatic Orthodox. 
uh, Principality of Spirit, um, you know, people like that. Uh, I, I did a impromptu late night stream when I was at the gym in the middle of the night. As you do. As is the custom. And because uh, I was reading, um, the one thing I wasn't reading that was pertaining to the faith, because right now I'm reading Lantern of Grace, which is about the Saint of San Francisco, Saint John Maximovich, um, reading Meditations in the Divine Liturgy by Nikolai Gogol. And I'm reading, um, my girlfriend came home from the library with a, a copy of The Beautiful and Damned by F. Scott Fitzgerald. Mm-hmm. I saw um, you mention that the other day. Yeah, and, you know, Fitzy and, and Hemingway, you know, I, 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 Fitzy? Fitzy, yeah. I feel familiar enough with him now that I can call him Fitzy. I hope he doesn't mind. He's um, dead. He's cool. Yeah, he's, he's chill. Um, well, probably not. But anyway. Um, no, probably, no, probably, probably not. not yeah. Probably not. <laughs> probably not. Um, I mean, you know, as an aside, now that I'm here in Chicago, one of the presents my girlfriend gave me was a visit to the Hemingway Museum. And she was able to surprise me. Sorry? A visit to the Hemingway Museum is what she said. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, which was awesome. I found out that Hemingway also has an opera singer mother. Um, so that was a very interesting <laughs> parallel I didn't know about. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, Fitzgerald and Hemingway are two guys I've been studying obsessively since high school. You know, most people read The Old Man in the Sea and Gatsby and call it. Or maybe they don't even read it. They're just like, ugh. Yeah, most men read The Old Man in the Sea? Yeah. I mean. Sun also sets. Yeah. Sun also rises. Sun also sets from a movie. Yeah. Um, but I, uh, I did a late night stream, um, kind of fee- talking about this essence of the future of America was far greater in the third, in like the twenties or in the tens than it was, than it is now. Like, this is not the future that was projected for America back in those days. Mm, no, that's a, no, definitely not. No. No, no, no. Um, and so I, I did like a late night stream called Fitzgerald and false gods, because I was reading you know, I, I, she was going to return the book to the library and I was like, um, and I was like, uh, no, don't do it. I want to read it because I've read a lot of Fitzy, but I haven't read that. And that's the second book he wrote after his first book, This Side of Paradise. And I'm going to do a very long stream about why that is the first, that it marks the beginning of modernism, that book, This Side of Paradise. Um, the Beautiful and the Damned, Beautiful and Damned was, was written, uh, like, This Side of Paradise is 1920. Believe the Beautiful and Dan came out in 22, in March of 22. Gatsby came out in 25. So Beautiful and Dan, I was reading the first chapter of it, and it's, the text is so rich. And kind of circling back to the very first thing we're talking about in terms of communication, talking about Hemingway is is very minimalistic. You know, every word should hit as hard as possible. Hmm. Right? That stream of consciousness uh, writing that is inherited by a guy named Newt Hempson. Newt Hempson is actually the first guy to um, really create stream of consciousness writing from Norway with his text Hunger that came out in 1899. If you read it, it has one foot in romanticism and one foot in modernism, but it's like a prelude to modernism the same way that the Boer War is the prelude to the writing on the wall for World War I. The Boer War and the Russo-Japanese War were the first kind of like half-mechanized wars. Right. So if we saw this in a, in a scale across Europe, it would be catastrophic. So we see that with this side of paradise. So um, Fitzy, Fitzgerald, didn't, uh, Fitzgerald didn't write the way that Hemingway wrote. Fitzgerald writes in this kind of prose that's just, it's like painting. It's like this beautiful painting. He uses as many words as he needs to to convey this 
almost agonizing like this 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 kind of emotion that i don't think has ever really been created by anybody else and it's so unbelievably alluring and i think the thing that's so painful about gatsby in particular and this side of paradise and i haven't finished reading um you know the beautiful and damn yet but i imagine it's going to end the same way is this fall this horrendous fall after a false promise Satan is the greatest illusionist. Mm. He's the greatest illusionist there is. He will give, he will put in front of your eyes something that it just seems undeniable and is the most beautiful thing on earth. And you're going to sacrifice everything for it. You're going to sacrifice everything for the wrong thing. Ugh. And that fall is going to hurt like hell. It could be, it could be fatal. The reason why Gatsby in my opinion, this side of paradise began modernism, but I think he really perfected his art with Gatsby in execution is America could have been something. America could have been far greater than it is now. I made the argument with principality of spirit when we recorded if if the president really still led America, then America coming into hegemony in 1945 probably would have been a good thing, but it's president Mm. isn't really in control anymore. Um, and so there was this promise of something, this allure of, and, you know, uh, Sinclair Lewis kind of writes about it. He kind of projects this in his text, Aerosmith, but there's Gatsby has this come down. What is the come down of Gatsby? The allure is this promise of be, is being with Daisy and I'm going to do everything it takes to be with Daisy. I'm going to make something of myself. I'm going to be a bootlegger and I'm going to create this crazy fortune. I'm going to put a house across from hers and I'm going to attract her with these parties that seem like they shouldn't even be possible. And this obsession is going to be fatal. Our obsession with material success, as opposed to a true higher ideal, we saw how, how high can our success take us? How high can we go? But it's without God. So it eventually comes crashing down. And it's, it's beautiful to watch, but it's, it's, it's fatal. Mm-hmm. That's why the pe- people think Gatsby is a thing. Well, that's kind of a dumb story. No, it, it reflects the condition of America. It reflects our downfall. And, ho- and hopefully we can gain. It's not a book that ends like Gatsby does, but hopefully we can regain God and we don't have this kind of downfall because it could very easily come for us. And it's been in motion for 90, maybe 110 years now. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's the kind of, <laughs> I mean, that was an aside. That's the kind of content that I've been doing um, during this Lenten phase, because I have come across and I had a, a, a part of my life where I walked away from God and I went, I found myself in New York city. And if there's, and I've mentioned this before, because I'm in Chicago now, I'm kind of feeling like a similar energy, for lack of a better term, that I felt in New York City. In certain instances, you go to old Chicago, you go to you go to old New York, right? We inherited an ideal, a Faustian ideal from England, from the British Empire, the greatest empire in the world. It, you know, the sun never sets in the British Empire. You know, but there, there's a reason for that. They could take control 25% of this, this earth. And 
they, it was reflected this ideal in their architecture, this Gothic architecture, this grandiose, but there's something somber about it that reflects the spirit of England that isn't always in, inherently victorious. It's not always outward, full of life, jovial. That's more France. That's more when France is on top, they're so on top to then come crashing down and go back up and come back down and go back up. England never really has that. England, even when they're winning, is like, eh, right, it's a bit shaky. So, yeah. It's so, just you keep calm and carry on. Maybe things will be good. Maybe things won't be. You know, the, the poem of England is the wanderer. You know, I'm getting into the Saxon crosses uh, wheelhouse. That's really his, you know, his adoration is for Tolkien and the wanderer and paradise lost and all these things. So it's this Faustian spirit we inherited from England. And it's reflected in that Gothic architecture. But America did something different. We put that architecture on stilts. We literally tried scraping the sky. We went full tower of Babel about it. And there's part of me that looks at it and is so inspired. And I'm like, should I be inspired by this? Should I be inspired by New York? Should I be inspired by Chicago, seeing these skyward towers that are gorgeous? If I think of God when I see them, yes. If not, if I'm seeing this other false skyward Nietzschean hierarchy that isn't really there, then it's fatal. Hmm. Um, And so when I was in New York... I, I wrote a post about this recently on Instagram called a bad memory where you know, I was in various, I found myself away from God and I thought I could not come back. And I found this almost Nietzschean spirit that people are kind of messing around with now. You know, mm-hmm. Maps of the world, the other vitalists, you know, the people who take, um, take uh, beyond good and evil and Zarathustra a little too seriously. We take the Wagnerian ideal a little too seriously. That spirit, I think, actually has sentience because when we're talking about the spiritual. Oh, yeah. Um, I, I'm, I don't go on a little over the place here, but there is a common. That's fine. Uh, Have you listened to this podcast before? <laughs> yeah, right, right from the jump. It got a little, got a little interesting. No, um, I love it. I, um, that, that's, we're talking about Christianity being uh, conquering in the material and the spiritual world, which means there's a spiritual unseen world, a spirit that we can feel. There's a creator, George Bagby, who talks about, I think people, actually, I won't go into Mormonism, never mind. Okay. It's a whole thing. Yeah, it's a whole thing. Um, but when I was in New York and I was pretty down for the count, I had just sustained my lower back injury. And my parents, my mother in particular, says, can I come out and visit you for Christmas? And I said, no, mm. don't visit me for Christmas. She's like, why? I'm like, hmm. Warriors don't go, like, frontiersmen don't go to the frontier. When things go wrong, they call their mom. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, it's smart. Very wise. And um, I'm going to take this one on the chin for better or for worse. And to all her objections, I'm like, I'm not telling you where I live. Don't come, <laughs> don't come here. Um, and I was wandering various parts of New York, taking the subway in and out of places, lower Manhattan, the tallest part of Manhattan. And these are late hours, 10 p.m. to 4 a.m., right? Mm. And I'm just wandering everywhere, and I'm starting to feel something. Starting to feel like if you really want to take your loner tendencies apart from everything and everyone else, including God, this is a wonderful, perfect storm of a place to do it. No one's looking at you in New York. No one cares. It is the greatest place to disappear on earth because there's 8 million people trying to get somewhere else at any given time of the day. You can stand in the middle and no one's going to care. 
you wouldn't mind, I'd like to read that just to probably. Yeah, please go ahead. And funnily enough, this was something that Andrew and Nick chose to preview as my, my sample piece of get to know our writers for Carolus Press. And I'm like, oh, you chose this mm-hmm. one. That's a bit grim. But, <laughs> and I, I said this in that stream I did in the middle of the night in the gym titled A Bad Memory. Said I sat in a bar in Brooklyn, a cursed and wretched place, sinking into a glass of rye, darkness shrouding my eyes. I wore a half smile, a bleak kind of a grimace, too stubborn to die and too clouded to live. Embracing the belly of the behemoth, a haunt following me every place I went. Look at that man sitting in the corner. Look at that man sitting alone at the bar. Black boots, black denim jacket black garb. What is it you're writing? I had to come and speak to you. What made these people think I wanted to take part? What made these people think I wanted to opt into humanity? What made these people think I didn't want to disappear into the crowd sitting in plain sight? I can be whatever you want me to be. Just don't ask me to actually speak. I see something within this fray that everyone seems to desire outmaneuvering. No, I want to stand still. There's a thread somewhere in here I want to pull on. Now I don't have to exist. That what inspired that isn't really me. That's something that I felt in New York, and I'm feeling someone in Chicago now. It's like you can descend into this absolute madness, this absolute isolation that will quite literally bring you to insanity, just like Nietzsche was. And this is the, this is the guy that people are saying. This is the guy that people are saying, you know, this is the new ideal, you know, the ubermensch will rise. Um, that's a subverted, subverted understanding of hierarchy. That's making a false god. I mean, Wagner was trying to find divinity in Germany with his ring cycle, and I think he found God's reflection of Germany in that, but I don't think he fully made it a, a false god in and of itself. Whereas Circling back to everything I was saying about these buildings, Gatsby, Faustian spirit. We're talking about the Gilded Age of America. We're talking about the Victorian era of England. We're talking about the rise of, you know, the Nietzschean time of Germany, the rise of the German state with Otto von Bismarck, of course, Kaiser Wilhelm. We're talking about a spirit that actually is in the spiritual world that is fatal. That is really indeed Faustian, and I don't know why people are calling themselves Faustian men and Christian like it's a good thing. It literally is antithetical. And it's something that I felt in New York, and I said, if I go down this road, there is no turning back. Like, there would literally be no turning back. And I see glimpses of it here in Chicago. It's not as aggressive as in New York, because Chicago's downtown is like a fifth of the size of that in New York. But it's where America went wrong. Like America could have had it. America could have promoted a great ideal for the world. But instead, we went the other way. Mm-hmm. We really did go the other way. And it's you and I had this debate actually recently about vitalism, right? So vitalism in itself, right, is, is reflection of Nietzsche, right? This Faustian man, this Ubermensch. I see living with vitality and being Christian as a false dichotomy. Agreed. I agree with that. And I, I said this to Jay Bird in a while ago, but 
the, this point in my life where I was talking about where I sat and I, I, in, in my room in a certain place in the Bay Area, and I said, there's a war and no one's seeing it. I said, well, I'm living with vitality right now. In my faith, if I don't pray, if I don't confess, if I don't walk in faith, my salvation is at stake. If I don't train vitally, I'll get knocked out. If I don't work seven days a week, I'll, I'll starve. There's vitality in that. That is actually living to the fullness of man. We don't make a god of it. We're not making false gods of America. We're not making false gods of Nietzsche. We're not making false gods of the West, which is a big problem that I'm seeing right now. Bingo. We're not making, there's no divinity in the West itself. There's no divinity in vitalism itself. These are, if correctly applied, correctly understood in, in what real hierarchy, hierarchy is under God, it's a gift from God to live in this way, to live with vitality towards the right things, the right organization. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I don't disagree with the, the urgent need for Christians to live with vitality. I don't disagree with that at all. I just disagree that because vitalism is a distinct thing, a noun, a movement that was decisively divorced from God and um, was, was Nietzschean ultimately in character that we can become our own gods and we must become our own gods because God is dead. And that was, that was Nietzsche. And, uh, but I think you had said that you feel like it's a spirit that's alive in the world. And I think you're right. Uh, when you said that, I've, I've had similar thoughts about different aspects, but I think the, the Nietzschean spirit in general, I think it calls to men and what it, ultimately its allure is vanity. Mm. It's like, you know, you imagine men traveling in a, in a, in a group, you know, um, a, a, a pack in a way. And then out there on the, on the horizon, in the wilderness is this Nietzschean spirit that holds up a mirror to a man, a false mirror that shows him some image, some godlike vision of himself. And so rather than staying with the pack, he goes following the mirror off, yeah. right? And, and ultimately, he may succeed or fail on that quest, but the end result is the same. If he fails on the quest to become his own Nietzschean ideal, then he just dies unfinished in the wilderness. But if he succeeds, the pursuit of power becomes an end in itself, mm-hmm. right? And it ultimately, it ultimately leads a man into wickedness. Because if you have a conscience there are some things you won't do for power, right? But if power becomes the pursuit of an end in itself, then your conscience gets seared, and then you, can, then you can do whatever you want for power. And this is when men start getting into occultism. And so one of, one of the groups that's existed, it's not really part of it now, but it was, it was, a, it was a way, way, there are probably many more of them now that I don't know about, but it was a way, way, way background part of the conversation called Operation Werewolf. Um, head by Paul Wagner mm. and Paul, Paul Wagner's organization. He, he was more part of the conversation two or three years ago. He's not really now, but he's still around. They, that whole thing is purely Nietzschean in spirit, <clears throat> anti-Christian, ultimately Norse pagan, which is occultism. I don't care how they dress it up. I've studied the Norse pagan runes. The Norse pagan runes are occultic. You use them for will working and concentrating the mind. Occult, it's just pure occultism, but just with a Norse. Thing. And that was all part of that. Not necessarily about him in particular, but that's that Nietzschean spirit. It's mm-hmm. like, come follow us. Come be powerful, big, strong. You know, we will conquer, right? It's that barbarian warlord in the wasteland spirit. It's all part of the same. It's all part of the same thing. It's all part of the same thing. And, and um, 
now I don't know how it's seductive and I don't know how much this is taking place right now, but I can definitely see that I think it's obvious that Christendom is engaged in spiritual warfare with secular progressivism, which is ultimately Satanism hiding under the mask of, you know, victimhood essentially. Yeah. It's it's a godless authority that we're dealing with right now. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. But I, I, I saw, I, as we talk about several other members of the masculinity space that are ultimately serving their own power and their own ends that are actively vocally, we saw lots of this around Easter guys rejecting Christ and God, whether making stupid jokes or, you know, saying God is dead or whatever. It's like they're actively rejecting that. And that's a thing too. And the ultimate seductive promise of that is power is not as unaccountable self-referential power. And that's a very real thing that a lot of men get seduced by. And you mentioned soul bra. So I, I don't think soul bra is part of that, but ultimately his, mm-hmm. what he ta- his, him talking about the whole like, you know, manifesting crystals, whatever, like as I, I did a two and a half hour presentation about the new age, manifesting and crystals and all that is just the happy fuzzy side of dark occultism. There are two no, sides of the same code. He's, he's not right? a malicious person. Like he's, no, he's just doing, yeah, he's, he, we'll keep that carry on. <laughs> right. Yeah. This isn't about him, but it's just, yeah. just it's it, like, or any of the men that I've mentioned, except to say that these different men espouse philosophies that they consciously or unconsciously set up in opposition to Christianity. And in many cases becoming conscious, like they're rejecting Christianity, vocally rejecting Christianity, promising men power and seducing them with empty promises of unaccountable power. And it leads men into the wilderness. And that's why, your point about Christian vitality is so important because, as you said earlier, men in many cases measure each other by what they can see. It's as ultimately a spiritually impoverished way of measuring a man, mm-hmm. but it is real. And so if we're going to talk about Christian vitality, how many Christian men are actually being vital? And that's, that's the whole story of the next 365 days, is more Christian men living more vital lives so that they can not only fight the battle against secular progressivism by showing up as confident, grounded men, but also for the men that are tempted to be seduced by power into the wilderness, they say, no, you can have that same vitality as a Christian man. And that, I think, is the story for the next 365 days of the men's movement. And then, and then who knows what happens after that. If that's successful in the next year, it's going to be a hell of a shift. I mean, it's going to be, then at the end of those 365 days, it'll be quite a massive like, movement. Honestly. Yeah, I agree. That's the only thing. That's the only way I see that going. I, I, it's not because I want it to be. I said if that's successful. If it isn't, uh, I don't know. Um, but yeah, I mean that. I to anyone listening, I can't stress how that's that's a real spiritual assailant out there. Mm-hmm. It's a wolf. It's a wolf. I, I, I felt it like just in downtown Chicago this past December. I mean, it's, it's stunning. The tri- I literally look at the Tribune Tower and get inspired, right? It's not necessarily that in itself. Um, there's a John Milton quote on it. Um, there's a bunch of beautiful architecture, but there's something lurking around, basically saying, like, you could have every, you'd strive for this high false ideal that, like, leads you to think you're perfection, you're a superior man in every single, like, again, Ubermensch. That is a real temptation. Yeah. It's powerful. It is deeply alluring. But to your point about the occult, and as we reflect this in all the stories of Fitzgerald, all the stories of you know America, is it always takes more than it gives you. 
like that mm. you will always lose more than you gain in the end um and so anyone listening like separate yourself from that detach from that see yeah. that with clear eyes witness yourself feeling that and you realize what it is God works in mysterious ways, but he's clear with us at the same time. He can be that paradoxical because he's God. <laughs> he gets to do that. Yeah, he's capable. We're not. Yeah. Um, he, will, he will meet you with truth to where you're at, so you eventually come to the point where you see the whole truth for what it is. In, in certain instances, we'll never fully understand the whole truth of, of God and his creation because we're not meant to. Maybe, maybe, in, maybe when we're in his kingdom, who knows? Um, but that, that, that's been a real focus in my work lately because I, I love this country. I love this country deeply. And, you know, there's a big debate and there's parts of my back of my mind. It's like, you know, we're not the indigenous ancestors of this nation if you're European, right? If you're, you're Cherokee or Miwok, you know, what have you. Um, I see the war for Europe you know, if you read Clausewitz on, on war, um, it talks about famine and immigration being warfare too, right? Mm-hmm. Um, the demographics of America shift at the end of the day. Some people argue this case with me. This is not an ethnostate, right? This is founded by Anglos. They could have put it in the Constitution, this nation's for Anglos, this nation's for European peoples. Fine. But it isn't. It's a propositional nation. It's founded on ideals. So, we need to learn to live with each other here. That's just the reality of the situation. Europe is different. For Europe to become something else is to see the end of the European existence. It is an existential threat. And that's a lot of people are really surprised. A lot of people are really surprised to see me go down that trope. And it wasn't as this kind of thing of like anger, right? It was more because we, and you and I talked about before we started recording outrage culture within, you know, right wing mm. political spheres, right? Very much it's the equivalent of, you know, the, the leftists being offended about everything, right? Mm-hmm. We have our own equivalent of that. That's not pretty. Um, so I didn't start talking about this for the sake of outrage, but if you allow so much immigration in Europe, existentially later on, Europeans are going to no longer have a say in their ancestral homelands. And so, right. that, yes, that process has been, there's multiple prongs to that, but yes. Absolutely. And when you think about it, too, if you're someone who is a, 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 like a, a lover of authentic culture, I don't want to go to Egypt. I mean, you know, a lot of Americans do this. They, they live the American experience wherever they visit. I'm not right. someone who wants to do that. If I go to Egypt, I want to experience everything Egyptian. If I go to um, Mongolia, I want to experience everything Mongolian. But if you have a bunch of people, a bunch of immigrants saying, we need more, I don't know, Czech voices in Mongolia, it's going to stop being Mongolia. It's, it's ridiculous. It's absolutely right. ridiculous. So that's my kind of stance on Europe. When it comes to this country, I love this country. I think this country is a net positive. I agree. I, you know, being orthodox, it's not the most orthodox country in the world, far from it. Um, but there's a long history of orthodoxy, particularly in San Francisco, too, that is near and dear to me. My home is dear to, near and dear to me. So these, I often look, look, look back in America's history and say, where did it go wrong? And there's a lot more to it than just a few economic decisions. There's a lot more to it than just a few decisions on foreign policy. 
Yep. Um, it is layered. It's something that I've obsessed over in some way, shape, or form since I was 15. Um, because reading about America pre-modernism, you're like, whoa. Actually, you and I discussed this in a, in a book club, the Queen's Code, reading it to Frederick. Oh, yeah. Uh, briefly saying, like, look at videos of America, you know, in the aughts, mm-hmm. in, in the 1890s. It's, a, it's, it's almost alien. It feels like a completely different nation right now. This is the dystopia that we're living in. Yeah, we're, we're living in what is ultimately, we talked about culture being eroded over time, but now it's a deliberate anti-culture that is, pro- that mm. is spread by where I'm from, from the San Francisco Bay Area. It's, it's in, basically administered to us now through technology. Yeah. Technology and the way these messages are spread through algorithms that make us feel like we're crazy because we're seeing a bunch of things trend that aren't actually that real. They're anti-culture. And if you remove okay. those algorithms, things would go back to normal. That's sort of like the silent majority nonsense, right? It's like, yeah, yeah. the majority of people don't really believe this. But a lot of that majority are starting to think they're crazy because the technology at hand is administering to them anti-cultural um, norms, anti-cultural beliefs about saying, well, maybe your nation isn't like this anymore. Maybe it's like this. And people who don't have a don't have a faith or a strong identity, they fall for it hook, line, and sinker. Um, mm-hmm. But it's also there's there's a there's a white pill in this as well. And Zenovial actually brought something up that I think is pretty interesting. Um, cyclical history is something that uh, it's another trope that uh, it's it's another field of things that me. Lotus in the Ruins and Zenobia were really on for a bit, saying that I don't think it's really antithetical with Christian truth because we live in a seven-day cycle, and on the eighth day is when God returns. We do live in cycles within the encapsulation of the beginning and end of time. Um, and yeah, this cycle of, of fall really like kicked off in the 60s. And we see that in postmodernism being a deconstruction of everything, right? But now we're at a point where deconstructions of things aren't cool anymore. We're, we're kind of saying things like, you know, I don't really want this anti-hero. We don't want Don Draper anymore. We don't want Walter White anymore. We want an actual hero. We want, we want something tangible. We want to build something. We don't want to deconstruct anything anymore because there's nothing left to deconstruct. We're deconstructing mm-hmm. things that can't be deconstructed, like gender. We're deconstructing all kinds of things to the point of yeah. insanity where people are finally starting to say there's nothing alluring about the godless authority anymore. There's nothing alluring about progressivism anymore. The new left, nothing alluring about it because they have nowhere else to go except oh, either destroy your humanity or begin to build something in the opposite direction. I agree. I agree. I, I, I think they have. I think they have plenty far to go. I mean, I, I agree with you fundamentally that they're tearing down. They're tearing down every. The goal is to tear down every possible border. You know, and and I mean that in a metaphorical sense. You know, every boundary must fall. Nothing must be anything, and everything must be one. That's ultimately. Theological, and any anyone who raises an objection, you know, um, an objection comes from masculinity. It comes from testosterone. It comes from boundaries. It comes from men. That's why the that's why the all out war on men 
they all have to be eliminated to uh, to facilitate the destruction of of every of every possible of every possible mm-hmm. boundary. And so that's where the transgender insanity is coming from. But I don't think they're. I, I think they've got so much further to go. Um, but I think I think the the transgender just puts such a fine point on it. It just crystallizes it. Mm-hmm. You know, from a from a tactical perspective, I think I, I think it was because I don't think of the people trying to take over the world. I don't think of them as this monolithic entity. I think it's a whole bunch of different groups that all hate each other, but have all like roughly allied with each other. Mm-hmm. And I see that 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 particular transgender thing as one group. And it's like you let I, I did a tweet about this. You like you let him out of the bag, right? You let him out of the bag, and and like you can't contain that. That's just going to run itself and go absolutely crazy. There's no no. You can't say no to that. Ultimately, it'll hit a backstop where it's just like you know something, some a hard stop, right? Now the the advantage of the the disadvantage of that is it obliterates all moral authority that any of the quote unquote elites have. Because no one, no man in America is going to go to go to fight for anyone who who approves of like drag queen story hour. Like, sorry, you're a, you're a politician or you're an organization who who supports all this, and you think that I should go fight to war? No, I'm not going to war for you. Right? Forget it. So like that cuts off. It's spectacularly foolish. It cuts off all these other possibilities. It's like, yeah, no, I'm I'm not going to go to Ukraine for transgender. Like, why would I do that? So, um, the, but but on the other hand. On the other hand, it's such an all-consuming fire, right? You let out, you let the virus out of the bag, and it just goes wild, and it just infects everything and lights everything on. It lights everything up, in in one particular way. But it 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 really good at showing this is what the destruction of boundaries looks like. It's exactly what it looks like, in in undeniable terms, and. This is what happens when you try and stand up to it. You are unpersoned. You are not allowed to object to this. And it's a, it should be a very, I think it is, and I think it's a very strong moral call to many men to begin saying, when are you going to start standing up for a boundary? And what ba- when are you going to start standing up? And what boundary, what hill are you willing to die on? You got to pick it. Right, and I don't. I reject the hill on the die on the hill that I'm going to die on because that's ultimately retreatist. Mm-hmm. Right? What's the hill that I'm going to kill them on? Yeah. <laughs> right. right. So it's like the goal of the goal of war is not to die for your country; it's to make the other son of a bitch die for his. Like, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. I think, and I, I'm glad that the hill you're going to die on is passed out of lexicon. It was used quite often last year. Yeah. But now it's sort of like, look, you're going to play defense, and you're going to lose. Right. Yeah. The only the only hope is the only hope is to begin playing offense, and this is why the Christian vitality conversation is so strong and so important. Because only from a position of Christians going on offense, from a vital position of caring about uh, caring about government, caring about schools, caring about family, caring about and physical fitness, is what crystallizes it all of it all of it into a very tangible way. Only yeah. by caring, caring, caring about these things is it possible to begin moving forward. Only, only, only. And so I really do see that happening. And I'm seeing more and more, like a year ago, I didn't hear too many Christians talking about fitness. They were out there, but I just, you know, it was kind of like trying to drum up the conversation. Now it's like every day I find a new guy talking about it, a new pastor. Bill Nolan, Mike Pantile. Yeah. 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 But I mean, even, even um, you know, Matt Reynolds from Barbell Strong, there's a guy, William Wolf is his name. He was, I think he was, 
he was in the White House. He was a staffer in the White House. I don't remember which White House. But anyway, he's a very influential guy. He just did a tweet yesterday where he's like, I'm going to get rid of my dad bod and I'm going to be working with Matt Reynolds from Barbell Strong to do that. Like big high profile kind of guy saying this. You know, and I just found these guys on YouTube, the Iron Disciples, you know, Christian men. They've got, you know, whole videos about Bible study next to like, let's talk about red pill and let's go after Rolo Tomasi. So it's like those guys are happening. It's a thing. It's a, it's a, it's a, shout out to yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. So I, I see this, I see this really catching very soon. Nate Spearing, you know, shout out Nate. He and I talk about this. You know, it's it, it, the, the and the culture of silence around obesity and Christianity is now over. It's now over, right? Like, and 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 uh, you know, shout out to myself. I called that last year. Hundred <laughs> percent. Yeah, and so um, these donuts and corn syrup and seed oil, yeah, <laughs> seed oils, all of that. Yeah, yeah. So, so I see this really happening, and I I see it all very much as as a it's a prelude to war, right? Like we're gathering up food stores for the winter. Right, but dropping the food stores off of our body and putting them in the pantry. Yeah. <laughs> I could stretch that metaphor way too far. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. I I couldn't agree more. Um, the way forward, I mean, what we have to do right in front of us is clear. Mm-hmm. Um, we kind of get somewhat of a glimpse what a year from now would look like if that's the case. Um, yeah, the other guys are more pessimistic than I am. Other guys are... I wouldn't even call them optimistic, just like not aware, right? Um, yeah. So I think the future's bright. And that's what I'm excited about. And even if it isn't, who cares? And it's just like, you're, 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 what I mean by that is, of course, I care. But let's, let's say, joking, let's say things do get worse. And you have to keep going, right? Let's say, we, let's say we lose a lot more. Well, as long as not everything's completely lost, we can come out on the other side and there can be generations beyond us that are healed and not having to deal with any of this. Yeah. And that's the win. Do I think it's going to come to that? No. Do I think we're living in end times? No. Every, every, everyone and their mother who's lived in a bad time over, you know, throughout the post-resurrection and ascension history has thought that they're living in end times. People going through the Black Plague, yeah, I'm sure. Like, oh my gosh, it must be end times, right? Well, it looks pretty end times to a lot of people, I'm pretty sure. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure, you know, World War One probably looked like end times to a lot of people yeah. in Europe. You know, no, no, one had under, no one had seen anything like that before. Um, so I'm sure that we have a hell of a lot more time to go. I don't think I'll see um, the Antichrist and the Second Coming in my lifetime. Maybe I'm wrong. I'll be ready for it either way, hopefully. Um, but it's, um, this, this is our struggle now. We've been put in this time now by God. We weren't put in, we weren't put in, in, uh, in Christian Rome. We weren't put in, you know, World War One America. We weren't put in the Renaissance, you know, the original Renaissance, um, uh-huh. just, just now. So don't reject that. Um, I'm forced to get going. I have to yeah. get back to the, the daily duty of anti-fragile fitness, but, uh, it was, it was great to speak to you. Always great to talk to you, man. Thank you. Yeah, and I, I, I couldn't agree more with we are the men for the moment and, and the moment is for us as men. If not us, who? If not now. Exactly. Yeah. So where would you like to send men to find out more about you, anti-fragile fitness, and all the things that you do? So I, uh, I'm on Substack, Instagram, mm. Twitter, and YouTube, or Blood and Rain. Okay. Uh, as far 
probably TikTok soon, as much as I hate to say it. Um, <sighs> yeah, I mean, if Father Michael Butler can be on TikTok and he crosses himself and say, yeah, it's Sodom and Gomorrah, but I have a great reach there. All right. So can I. Um, you know, he's, he's leading the way for me. If he's of the clergy, I can say, all right, I'll be there. Okay. Um, yeah, you'll probably do great. Hope so. Hope so. And then Anti-Fragile Fitness is just on Instagram right now. It will be on Twitter, YouTube, uh, even Substack, long articles about fitness and, uh, and TikTok as well. So it's anti.fragile.fitness and then blood and rain is blood underscore and underscore rain. Got it. How's uh, Storms and Soirees doing? You talk to him often? Great guy. Great guy. He's, uh, he's, doing, he's, he's writing something about um, uh, like a late night Denny's uh, incident. But other than that, he hasn't really said much. Okay. Well, tell him. Tell him I said hello. I I, I miss his uh, I miss his content. We'll do. I think he's at the he's at the seashore fiesta right now. So, <laughs> <laughs> slid man, awesome. All right, dude. Thanks. So it's been so great talking to you. episode of the Renaissance of Men podcast. Visit us on the web at renofmen.com or on your favorite social media platform at Ren of Men. This is the Renaissance of Men. You are the Renaissance.